our podcast this week, we turn 450. Oh, yes, indeed, folks. And we celebrate with close personal chums, Paul Greengrass, Director of News of the World, and Kevin MacDonald, Director of Life in a Day 2020. Plus, the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that might be about to burn down the pod booth. 450 candles does constitute a fire hazard after all. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the 450th episode of the Empire Podcast. Yes, indeed, 450. Not only is that the combined age of three members of the Hollywood (laughs) Foreign Press Association, it is also... That's not the first, that's not the last sick burn will be throwing her away. <laughs> this episode, let me tell you, it is also the number of episodes we have clocked up over the years, 450, which given that we take two weeks off every year because we're lazy, it means we've been doing this for nine years. Jeez. Nine years, folks. Nine years. Nine. Next year, when we hit 500... We'll have to hire Jeremy Piven. He may be on Cameo. Who knows? <laughs> to come in and yell, 10 years, 10, 10, 10 years, 10 years. But for now, you're going to have to make do with me and two colleagues of such lethal cunning. And yes, I know we usually have three and usually we have someone in the rotating fourth chair. But for this episode, it felt right that we keep it to the OGs, as they say. For nine years ago, four of us, including Ali Plum, Walked into a studio at Empire Towers, sat down, without telling the editor we were doing it, but that's another story, and started giggling like idiots into a microphone. Luckily, someone recorded it, or unluckily, as it turns out, put it out as a podcast, and now, nine years on, Ali has moved on to bigger things, of course, but the rest of us are stuck here, in a kind of time loop, a purgatory almost, if you will, doomed to repeat the same old shit over and over (laughs) and over and over again. So please welcome the last surviving original members of the Good Ship Empire podcast, Geek Queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. I hope that people got your deep cut reference to Gross Point Blank, because I worry that not enough people have seen it. That's not a deep cut. I think a lot of people these days haven't seen it. It's a while. It's a while ago now, you know, and I think people may have forgotten. I need to watch it again. Anyway, let's let's wrap this up so I can watch it. Do you know how many years it is since Ghost Point Blank? Don't tell me. 24! Do under- oh. 24, <laughs> 24 years! 24! 24 years! Holy shit. Yeah, I'm well, so now weird. I feel old. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Anyway, um, please welcome to the podcast as well, Nurb. James Dyer. This, see, this would not have had legs if the <laughs> listeners who, and I hate you all to a man, uh, have not photoshopped Nurb Abelia onto Twitter, <laughs> thereby making sure that this nickname has legs. Yep. But it's so nerb. fun to say. I'm, it's such a nerb. great word. I'm not, I am not going to be podcast Nurb. This is not, not going to be a thing. Sorry, sorry, what were you saying there? Nurb? All I could hear was Nurb, 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 Nurb. <laughs> I feel I need to pull you up for having retconned Phil DeSemlin out of the history of the podcast. He wasn't on the first episode, was he? to Phil. I don't know if he was on the first one, but he definitely did a number of them. He did. A lot over the years. He did, but he wasn't on the first episode. So therefore, Phil. Yeah. Mm. Having said that, I couldn't go back and listen to the first episodes. It's entirely possible you weren't on the first episode and Phil (laughs) was. I think I did the first one, but then was it the first one that we broadcast? Because we did a non-broadcast sort of test one first, didn't we? Before we actually put it out. I don't think episode one has never been aired. Did we? we no, we so. did. No, yeah, actually, was, no. I, I remember now what we did. Uh, we did 
four trial runs. Do you remember this? Was it what? four? I don't remember we doing did four. four. We did four trial runs. We didn't just do one trial run. We did we did four. I don't know <laughs> how many of those. we came up with this. We came up with this. This is the, this is the format. We thought, more of that banter, please. Nerb. I think we did we did four trial runs that actually, just to make sure that... This is now starting to ring a bell. In that yeah. ridiculous little heat studio that we had upstairs mm. in our old office building, back when we had an office building and indeed saw each other. I love that you say the heat studio that we had. Yeah, um, okay, you're right. The heat studio that we element. used to commandeer and regularly get like evils and almost get thrown out of. In fact, literally get thrown out. It had a glass window, folks, so people, uh, if we had like proper famouses in on the podcast... Uh, I remember we had Jake Gyllenhaal once in that little booth. We had Mark Wahlberg, people like that. And because it was a glass window out into the world, it wasn't even out into, the, you know, in a proper studio, you would have a window out into, you know, another studio or a production booth or something like that. But no, this was a window out into the kitchen. And so people <laughs> from true. all the various magazines in the building, not just Heat, but, you know, Grazia, Closer, FHM, even Empire, Top, Sante, Your Dog, <laughs> What a Dog, Great Dog, Hot Dog, all those great magazines. They would come round and they would do that really <laughs> weird thing where they would surreptitiously try and peep in at the hot fella <laughs> and Jake Gyllenhaal as well. Yeah. He was he was there too, and it was yeah. Remember we would have to like we try to put up curtains and stuff. <laughs> It didn't work. We had, just a, we had yeah, the Muppets work. in that booth. We did. We had the fucking Muppets in that booth. That was very exciting. They were fucking the Muppets. Muppets doing what? Was, like, to be very clear, you know, not to yeah. besmirch the good name of Kermit the Frog and Pepe the Prawn. They were yeah. not, you know, touching no, each absolutely. other. Absolutely. They were entirely well behaved. They, they were, were very yeah. kind, actually, because um, the their assistants weren't sure that we would need the Muppets to physically <laughs> come out for that appearance and that they might dial audio in only. Yeah. audio-wise, if you like. And James and I, our faces must have fallen about three feet <laughs> because they relented almost immediately and, uh, and appeared in person. I was horrified. He's like, you don't need the puppets, do you? I'm like, what do you mean? What, what does puppet mean? I don't understand. Where's Kermit? <laughs> I was like very, very confused by the whole, And who are you? Why are you touching him like that? I'm very yeah. upset. I'm sure yeah. I've said this before in the podcast, but I hosted a press conference once for the Muppets. For the Muppets movie, the, the, the Muppets doing a podcast with Muppets, mm. and they had a they had a massive stage built so that the puppeteers could stand up full you know full height. I don't know why it. you and guys keep talking chair. about puppets. It's weird. Sorry, I don't know, puppeteers. Sorry, the, sorry, the, the the Muppets assistants, handlers. There yes, they're yes, agents. The, yeah. not, not handlers. You know, they're the you know if, if Kermit is in the need for some cocaine, you know, he, he asks <laughs> yeah. these guys to sort him out. His, his body man. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Kermit's code word is popcorn. Popcorn, uh, and <laughs> and uh, and then immediately afterwards, they were like um, the, the the film company PR went, oh hey, they're about to do an interview next door. Can you go in and moderate that as well? Like turn it into a sort of de facto press conference. And so I did, but because it was literally just a hotel room, it was Steve Whitmire and the other guy <laughs> whose name I can't remember. I'm so sorry. But it was Brian? The, it was Brian. Brian something. Mark. Jeff. Jeff Puppet. Jeff. Jeff Puppet. It was him. It was a guy who does uh, Miss Piggy's voice now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve Whitmire, who was the voice of Kermit for so many years. Uh, now Kermit is voiced by some sort of demon. I don't entirely understand what's happened there. But, uh, and they just sat down in the chairs and they brought the puppets out and they were just doing the voices. But even so, they were doing the voices, or sorry, rather, allowing Kermit and the other Muppet to communicate Correct. through Thank them. Thank you. Thank you. You could only 
well, your eyes were always just drawn towards, towards Kermit. Towards the puppet. Yeah, yeah. Because you, that's who you talk to. You're there to interview Kermit, not this Steve dude, who was a delight, <laughs> but you know. Steve dude. It was delightful, but really it was all about Kermit and we were extremely excited that day and, and not remember, at all sensible. And this is the, my Paxman-esque grilling. I remember asking Pepe the Prawn whether he was a king you grilled prawn, the prawn? Or, or in fact. <laughs> yeah, I grilled him. Oh <laughs> Throw him on the barbie. <laughs> no, uh, I asked him if he was uh, a king prawn or the king of prawns. And that <laughs> seemed to throw him slightly. How have you never been asked that? It's like improvise. Think of your feet, prawn. Honestly. <laughs> and Charlotte Copley came in and tried to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was going to ask before we get into the the main podcast. Do you remember how how short the podcasts were back then? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was too long. Like how long were the early ones? I think the like- first the last time I saw the first episode, it was about forty eight minutes. Yeah. And I remember being like, I mean, dude, I think that's too long. I don't think anybody will listen that long. I think we should probably cut it off at 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, and there's there's an argument to be made for that. There absolutely <laughs> there, is an argument to be made is. for that. <laughs> but it's it's hubris, isn't it? It happened the same with the Pilot TV podcast. We started at a tight 45 for a while. And the most recent one I did was a, as a hair under three hours. So, you know, <laughs> we're monsters, all of us. Yeah. Uh, poor Keith. Uh, but if you're still listening to us after all these years and all this bullshit that we have spouted, then thank you so much for sticking with us. Thank you. Uh, it, it means a lot. What are your memories of the first episode? I have none. I remember, n- not from the first episode, I remember uh, pulling out a Wilhelm scream, that's not a euphemism, in the pod booth uh, <laughs> early on in one of the... F- but it is, by coincidence, what you call your penis. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other story. Um, but I, 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 think, I think I developed a really irritating habit of bringing sound effects with me into the early podcast. Do you remember this? You did. Oh, yeah. yes. Well, I would pull out pulling my phone out and I'd phone. have some kind of annoying sound effect to play yes. until you made me stop. <laughs> Also, we did. We had jingles for we the first jingles, few weeks of the yeah. podcast. Yes, we had jingles. We had jingles. I'd forgotten oh about the jingles. God. We had some very talented readers who sent in some. Some of them were very good, as I remember. <laughs> yes. Was this um, before we thought to pilfer the music from our old Empire TV show. And no, use no, that. we always had that. We always oh, had we that. Yeah. We had that from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. But uh, we had we jingles, just interstitial things to break up the different segments. And now I just go, and that was another segment. And now it's time for another segment, which I'll be doing very, very shortly. <laughs> um, <laughs> So you suggested, didn't you at one point you canvassed readers to see if we would replace the iconic Empire theme tune with something a little jauntier? (laughs) I think... think You can't get more jaunty than that. You can't get more iconic either than than a tune recognised by literally dozens of people. Uh, Yes, I did. And and sometimes I still think that I would like to replace the theme tune, but um, we've kind of locked ourselves into this bangly bang nonsense so it has to have that ending i just think yeah. that the the theme tune as it is is too bombastic for a podcast especially one that you know talks about <laughs> film it'd be great for like a, a death podcast you know 100 greatest decapitations that sort of thing that'd be great for that <laughs> what if it was movies to be buried with you know yes that's both that work. maybe we well, should see, offer they've, the got, they've got that lovely yeah, they do. version of the Pearl and Dean, yeah, they thing do going on. That, so I don't that know. Sounds like a copyright infringement. I'm sure. I'm sure Brett's paid for it. I'm sure we're not going to get Brett into any trouble uh, whatsoever by by mentioning that. Uh, but yeah, because I, I was at the university, the three hour. I should mention it now. Uh, the three hour podcast that we did, uh, which is really special. I recommend it to everybody, uh, ex- with the exception of uh, dogs. A three-hour conversation between Edgar Wright and Quentin Tarantino, which I was also present. 
I got about five words in the entire time. And they're talking about their greatest cinema moments. It's, it's a tie-in with our new issue, which is out on sale right now, all good and evil news agents, um, in which people, famous people, readers, recollect their greatest cinema-going experiences. Quentin Tarantino couldn't do something for the magazine, but he graciously volunteered to come in and do a podcast with us. Uh, well, I'll say come in. He was in Tel Aviv, Edgar was in central London, and I was here. But nevertheless, we made it work, and it's three hours of absolute next-level film geekery. So I would heartily, heartily recommend that. But whilst I was editing that, I put a little preamble for me before the theme music. Then the theme music kicked in and nearly gave me a heart attack. So I, that's my feeling. I wonder sometimes if the theme music, like, do people even get past the theme music? Clearly, if you listen to this, you have got past the theme music. But like Office Ladies, Office Ladies, which is one of my favorite podcasts, has this lovely, just beyond was whimsical theme tune. The Fake Doctor's Real Friends podcast with Zach Braff and Donald Faison that has a lovely, soulful theme tune that they sing themselves. And I think that we are giving people either aneurysms or heart attacks. And um, maybe, maybe nine years in, it's time to change it up. It's quite full on. Are you? See, I, was, I thought for a second there, you might, might have been inclined to say something nice about the jaunty pilot TV podcast theme, which was composed by Billy Lund from the subways. I have heard it. I have heard it. Mm, yes. And praise comes no higher than that, Jimbo. You've heard it. <laughs> I, I, I can it. confirm that it exists, says Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so that exists. Well done. Yeah. Well done, everybody. So yeah, yes. there's some memories of the first podcast and Paddy Constantine was our first guest. And yeah, of course. He came into the studio and he was he was brilliant because he's Paddy and Paddy is great. And uh, yeah, and here we are, nine years later, filled with regret. <laughs> I remember nine Terrence years. Stamp was one of our earliest interviews on the podcast. Yes. And I remember there were like five of us in the booth with him. It was like a weird gangbang interview. Because of the, the format that we introduced as yeah. well. So we had all these crazy ideas about how we were going to do podcasts and what would set us aside from other podcasts. And we decided that one of the ways to do that would be to have two interviewers, at least two interviewers or, on every or interview. Four or which, five. Or four or five. Well, it was three. It was three on Terrence Stamp. <laughs> it, was, it was me. I think it might have been the Brothers Assembly or it might have been Ali. I was in there as well. Phil. So it was definitely you. Than you three. were not in the same room with Terrence Stamp. You barely know who the man is, for God's sake. <laughs> I was kneeling before him throughout the whole thing. I didn't let anyone stand up. <laughs> With your Wilhelm scream right out? Or Absolutely. Was it, oh was it <laughs> he made me rule over Australia at the end of it, so it was, uh, it was all good. <laughs> yes, that's right. Terrence Stamp, that was one of our very first specials. He came in, and um, because we were all we were all nervous, I think this is what it was. Sorry, folks, for this impromptu trip down memory lane, but <laughs> we were all really nervous about interviewing people on microphone, which is a vastly different experience yeah. from interviewing someone yeah. on a phoner or face to face when you know it's not going to be broadcast to again. I cannot stress this enough: literally dozens of people, <laughs> and that, you know, God, I don't even I don't even want to hear those first few interviews. I don't. Oh, no. I never don't. go back. No, no never Jesus. go back. No, no, no. Don't look. Don't look. Uh, just I don't assume it all it. went well and never check. I think yeah. that's important. And if you, if you listeners are prompted by this to go back and check, <laughs> please, please don't tell us what you yes. find. Because as shit as we enough. are now, we were way more shit back then. The improvement has been minuscule, but there has it been has. an improvement. But I, I remember that like, you know, it was like, okay, we want to set ourselves apart, so we want to have multiple interviewers. And so therefore, if someone begins to dry up, which can happen yeah. when mm -hmm. you're in an interview situation, when it's on camera, 
Or an, I still on think microphone? that's the dream, honestly. I still yeah, think so two, I. two, two people it. is just super good. I mean, James, <laughs> you and I talking to Keanu Reeves that time was, <gasps> that was one amazing. of my favorite interviews ever. Like, <laughs> that was amazing. I loved that. We did all the, the Instellar people as well, didn't we? John Wick 2 people and the Instellar people. right, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that was really good. Really? Yeah, oh, my God. Well, them, it it proved rapidly impractical to yeah, have two people go along to every single interview. <laughs> Chris um, is like, I would give a kidney now if one person would just take an interview <laughs> off my plate. <laughs> yes, please, please, God. <laughs> As I'm about to prove in fashion by, in spectacular fashion by doing both the interviews this week and the week before and the week before that and the week ahead and the week after that, but it's fine. This is the life we chose, the life we lead. There is but one guarantee. None, <laughs> none of us will see, see heaven. heaven. <laughs> Anyway, enough nerbery. It is time to <laughs> dig deep into this week's podcast. Uh, we're only four hours in. Let's, let's begin it. There's only three of us this week, so mm. we're not going to do the traditional three-fact structure. But I have a fact. I have a fact that is about five seconds long. Precisely. This is what I wanted to say. I want to mm. do this week's three-fact structure in three minutes, and I will give you a fact myself. Okay. Ooh. One minute each. Okay, Jimbo, that might go. be a problem for mine, but sure. Okay, <laughs> okay. okay. Just so. cut bits out. Okay, I, I, you can have my spare time, James, because mine okay. is literally You get to the relevant part of your fact quick. four or five minutes in, so just <laughs> skip to the end. If anyone's listening, just skip ahead here. Yeah. This is the Snyder Cut of my fact. So uh, this week's fact the is, is an longer. <laughs> I know. Oh, <laughs> I know, Helen. Challenge exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so this week's fact is an unknown one, and I mean that very literally. Specifically, it is about the 1927 silent horror film The Unknown, directed by Todd Browning from a script by Browning and Waldemar Young. Now, Who as Helen will of course know, as Helen he will of course know. He is. Yeah, I am. I'm absolutely encroaching on your turf with this. Mm-hmm. James versus Hollywood. <laughs> I'm going to lose. The Unknown is the story of Alonzo the Armless, who is played by Lon Chaney, and he's a circus freak who throws knives with his feet. Okay. Of course he does. But Alonzo has a secret, and his secret is this. He's not, in fact, armless at all. In (gasps) fact, he keeps his arms hidden under his shirt and only pretends (gasps) to be armless because he's on the lam for a number of crimes and is hiding as a de-armed circus performer because that's obviously escaping from the cops 101. Yeah, it's a perfect plan. However, the perfect plan is complicated by the fact that old Alonzo and the, uh, you know, the not-so-armless, is he's in love with Nanon Zanzi, played Helen by Joan Crawford. (laughs) Of course. That's what um, Robin Williams says in Work and Mindy. Doesn't he? He goes, Nanon Sanzi. Nanon Sanzi. Shazbat. Yes, exactly that. Anyway, so what I'm saying is the two of them are in a love triangle with the circus strongman called Malabar. And handily for Alonso, Nanon has a, a phobia of men's arms. So clearly he's the favourite in this particular menage a trois. But what is what, your fact? <laughs> what if what she is discovers? It? <laughs> what if she discovers, Chris, if he's not armless at all and he actually has arms? So what does he do? Of course, what he does is he blackmails a surgeon to amputate his arms for real. Ironically, at exactly the same time that Nanon presumably gets some kind of CBT therapy and gets over her phobia, and as a result starts cozying up to Malabar the strongman. Suffice it to say, this doesn't end well for anyone. But none of that is my facts. Of course not. You were just recounting the fucking plot of a film. I mean, I can't believe you've you've ruined this 93-year-old film. I'm giving you context now. It's kindly by text more like. (laughs) You're going to have to bleep that out. I know. I I, I do it gladly. (laughs) It's a sacrifice you're prepared to make. Oh, God. I pay it gladly. Equilibrium reference. Anyway, uh, my fact is, my fact is, 
that for decades this film was lost to both time and history. No one could find it. No one knew where it was. No one knew where it went. Not a clue. The unknown disappeared into the ether, and it wasn't rediscovered until nearly 40 years later when they found a 35mm print at the Cinématique Française uh, just mm -hmm. by chance in 1968. And it turns out, it turns out, the film's title, The Unknown, had led to it being filed away under that name, or more specifically under the French, L'Inconnu, uh, which is where hundreds upon hundreds of unknown film cans were basically just dumped and forgotten about because no fucker knew what they were. Uh, and so it got dumped in there. And... What I'm getting at is, needless to say, we kind of remain hopeful that the Jean Collet Sarah Liam Neeson film will one day suffer the same fate. Hey, 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 hey come on. Hey. You, no. You take that back. So disrespectful. I absolutely will not. You take that back. It has, no, but it's been restored. The, uh, the original Unknown, not the Liam Neeson film, the Unknown has been restored, although several early scenes are still missing. They are, however, mm. not considered integral or antagal to the plot. To the plot. <laughs> See. It would have been so simple for you just to go. There's yeah. a film from 1927. <laughs> like it's we didn't called need the anything else about this, the plot. It's really. not really about need, Helen. Really, is it's about want? I like to think, <laughs> but uh, this is all still part of my plan. Eventually, Chris will find my facts so unbearable that this horrific abomination of a section will be banished oh, to the same black hole that the unknown spent most of its life in. It's much no. to be desired. If it? anything, it's going to get its own spin-off show. You'll be trapped forever coming up with facts. Who no. gave you this fact this week? There's no way you came up with that fact yourself. <laughs> that would be thanks to uh, one Marcus Sprinkle. Okay. All right. The game is up. Hell's Bells. <laughs> I, I, my fact is very, very simple. That Lilo and Stitch features more Elvis songs than any Elvis movie. See, the problem, Helen, is there's no showmanship to that. No. <laughs> it's all in the presentation. Has, the, has Bake Off taught you nothing? Is that true? Yeah. I mean, it is, apparently. Huh. Yeah. Is that I true, Helen? I haven't rewatched clearly... all of the Elvis movies to check, I'll okay. be honest. How many? Fine. How many? There's like five Elvis songs in Lilo and Stitch. Five? Mm-hmm. Lilo and Stitch has many, many wonderful features, one of which is loads of Elvis. I've got to go back and um, rewatch some Elvis movies. I would have thought there were loads of Elvis movies and things like Fever Las Vegas. There's like three in most of them. Wow. Yeah. How was there never a kind of a temporal sequel to that called A Stitch in Time? Well, there was a bunch of sequels, so it might Just well be one, one of those. Not that I know of, No. Or will they go on a crime spree and have to lay low for a while? <laughs> My fact this week is that uh, Pink Cadillac was directed by Buddy Van Horn. That's my fact this week. Um, there's no winner. I just want to throw out some facts. Uh, however, James's fact was so, so long-winded that um, Helen is the winner this week. Well done, Helen. <laughs> that is a section that was not that did not exist, that segment, whenever we first started the podcast. Oh, that was one oh, of back the, in the best good old things. Days. If there's any evidence of how the Empire Podcast at age 450 is better than Empire Podcast at age one, it is the existence of the beloved three-fact structure. I challenge that fact. <laughs> Overruled. <laughs> Let's move on to the next section. And indeed, the next section is the listener's question. And this week's question is uh, from a first-time questioner. Ooh. I'm sure he's questioned things before, but just never on the Empire podcast. It is from <laughs> at BurningBeard696. Uh, and he says, I could go super topical and ask, what's the best stock market slash stock trading scenes? 
And, mm. and this is, of course, in relation. This was for last week's show, but we had a question already for that. And so this was in relation to the big story of the of the mm. day at the time, which was the GameStop Reddit thing that we talked about in last week last week's show to an extent, where where, where one company, a hedge fund, was trying to short stock in GameStop, and then a bunch of people on Reddit got together and tried to drive the price up, thus making life very difficult for a hedge fund. So difficult to feel sorry for hedge fund people. It really is. Uh, and so this is a very topical question still. It's still going on to an extent. Mm-hmm. What's the haps, folks? Any good stock market stock trading scenes? I, I have questions that I'm hoping you mm-hmm. two would help me with. And and that's the, the most iconic stock trading scene is obviously the finale of Trading Places. Yes. And I wish to ask anyone with a rudimentary high school level of maths to explain to me what the fuck happens in that scene. So my understanding, and I rewatched it recently and I still don't understand it. So mm. my understanding is that they have, they, have, they have got inside information because they know that the frozen concentrated orange juice crop has not been ruined by the unusually harsh winter. They feed the Dukes information saying that the crop has been ruined. So the Dukes broker is buying like a maniac from the get-go when the price is like, what, it's like 150, 160, whatever it's at. Mm-hmm. So he buys and they wait and they wait and they wait. Now, presumably they've been sitting on a load of stock, like they've got some. I'm not sure how they have it because they, or I don't know quite what's happening at that point or how they get it or what's going on. But then they, he goes, he doesn't, mm-hmm. he waits for the price to go up and then they do a Lewis. big old sell, don't they? Yeah, that's right. Yes. And then they do a big yeah. old sell. They sell a ton of it, which forces the price to go down. And then when it goes down, 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 down to like 30 or something, then they buy a ton of it back. Yes. This is right. Uh- Yes, I think so. And then the market ends and the price is about 29 and then they hug each other and scream. But that doesn't make any sense because they bought it when it was like 39. So why do they care if it stands 29 unless they're celebrating the fact that that means the Dukes are fucked. So maybe that's what it is. But I still don't really get what they, happened. No, but they did make loads of money in the process because we see them yeah, then. How? Like, where did they? Like, how? There's a fantastic breakdown of this. This is exactly the scene I wanted to bring up. Uh, okay. And I want to give credit to this one. There's a great breakdown of this on NPR npr.org and I read this a few years ago because there is something that Dan Aykroyd says in Trading Places that sparks off this trading frenzy at the end of Trading Places. That's the out of 142. He says something and he says it so quickly which is very, very true to life I guess in terms of how people do buy, sell, buy, sell on stock exchanges. Mm -hmm. He says it so quickly it's the most pivotal piece of information in the movie and it's pretty much garbled and thrown away. So the NPR article uh, is really good. They talked to a, a broker who actually trades orange juice options. That's what it's all about, the future of orange juice uh, crops. And so he broke it down into five, I think five points. I'm going to go through them as quickly as I possibly can. So here's uh, the plan of Billy Ray Valentine, Eddie Murphy, and Louis Winthorpe III, Dan Aykroyd, in John Landis's 1983 classic, Trading Places. If you haven't seen Trading Places, by the way, you're fucked because this is a huge spoiler for the movie. Uh, all right, step one. They give the Duke brothers, played by Don Amici and uh, Ralph Bellamy, of course, uh, they give them bad information. So the Dukes have bribed someone to get mm-hmm. advanced information about the Orange Peaks. Like insider trading, essentially. Yes. Yeah. It's insider trading. So Lewis and um, Billy Ray get their hands on the actual crop report. That's what the whole mm. business of Clarence speaks on the train. Uh, the crop report says the orange crop's going to be strong. 
And when the rest of the world learns this, verbatim quote, the price of orange juice will fall. So Winthorpe and Valentine create a fake crop report that they put into the hands of the Duke brothers, which says that the crop was bad. So when the Duke brothers see this, they think the price of orange juice is going to rise. Okay, so then they go to the floor of the commodities exchange. The Duke brothers have told their trader, again, direct quote, to buy orange juice futures and to keep mm. buying no matter how high the price goes. It's a very pivotal mm-hmm. scene as well where they, they, they tell him this. He's the, he's the sort of beleaguered, nervous looking guy on the floor. So then when the market opens, he starts buying. Everyone else sees him buying and follows his lead because he works for the Dukes and the Dukes are clearly in on it. All right. They know something. So then the price goes up and up and up and up and up. And then... That's when Lewis goes on the floor and yells out, sell 30 April at 142. Sell 30 April at 142. So for you, me, and even Helen, I suspect these are alien waters to you, Helen. What is is happening? (laughs) Okay. So what this means is he wants to promise to sell orange juice in April for $1.42 per pound. The 30 in that line, the 30 April, means he wants to start off by selling 30 contracts. One contract equals many, many pounds of orange juice. All the other traders think the price in April is going to be higher than 142, so they mob Winthorpe and Valentine, agreeing to buy lots of orange juice from them at 142 a pound. A minute later, the actual report is announced on the TV, and he Mm. says it's going to be fine. So then to the traders, this means OJ is not going to go through the roof, the orange juice, of course, not the troubled former football star. Sure. Uh, and so suddenly everyone who was buying all the orange juice, they need to get rid of it as quickly as possible. So then the price starts falling. And then when the price hits 29 cents a pound, that's when Winthorpe and Valentine start agreeing to buy orange juice in April. So they then have contracts allowing them to buy millions of pounds of orange juice, pounds and weight of orange juice in April for 29 cents a pound, and contracts to sell it for 142 a pound. They sold yeah. high, they bought low, they're rich, the Dukes went the opposite way, and it, as the article says, they are broke. The bit, the bit where they're constantly scribbling things on bits of paper doesn't seem particularly legally binding. Do you know what I mean? They're just scribbling stuff, scribbling stuff and the bits yeah. of paper's going everywhere. It's like, who's keeping track of this shit? Yeah, I've always wondered that. That's always been my question about a lot of these stock trading scenes. Like, could you not just drop the bit of paper and go, oh, nothing to do uh, oops, with me. don't know what you're talking <laughs> about. <laughs> contract? I don't know anything about a contract. But I think, I think the scribbles are considered pretty binding, so I guess that's it. I mean, there are... Weirdly, a lot of cool trading scenes. Wall Street has a really good one, obviously, that kind of pincer move at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, Wolf of Wall Street has ridiculous trading scenes, but I quite enjoy them all the same, even while disapproving of everybody involved heartily. And Boiler Room feels like it's less about trading, as does, um, what do you call the one with Demi Moore and Jeremy Irons? Oh, Margie Cole. Margie Cole, Cole. yeah. 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 I love That's that more the backroom discussion about trading rather than being on the floor itself. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was absolutely going to say Margin Call. It's one of my favorite films of the last ten years or so. It's probably more than ten years old now. Is it really? It's, it was it, pretty. It, it was pretty is. soon after the financial crash. Yeah, it might have been two thousand eleven, so it might be ten years. Oh, hey, maybe I can get JC Chander on for a retro spoiler special. <laughs> maybe he can talk me through some of the bits of the film I don't understand. But I love that film. I think it's tremendous. I try and watch it at least once a year if I can. I've uh, never seen it, you know. I've never so seen it. I'm going to add it right this second as we do this podcast. I'm going to add it to my watch list. Pretty sure it's um, on Prime Video. 
pretty sure it's on Prime Video. What a cast! What a cast! I mean, so it's produced by Zachary Quinto as one of the one of the you know the big cheeses in the cast. But Jeremy Irons, Demi Moore, Stanley Tucci, um, mm. other people. <laughs> so certain people we don't really talk certain about anymore. Kevin Spacey. There we go. I don't know who you're talking about. Kevin Spacey's in it, and he's great. He's absolutely fantastic. One of the one of the best Kevin Spacey performances. If you're going to watch any Kevin Spacey movie this weekend, I would certainly recommend Margin Call. Uh, Paul Bettany is in it as well it's just a wonderful wonderful cast very very smart and uh, yeah it's just so so good and it's about the stock market you know one of the Sacri Quinto basically the plot is Sacri Quinto is a up and coming uh, trader at this company uh, which has just fired a whole bunch of people and one of those people is Stanley Tucci and as he leaves he says can you take a look at this for me I've been looking at this and I haven't quite made it all click yet Sacri Quinto looks at it, looks at it, does runs the numbers, crunches the numbers a little bit more, and realizes that his company has been uh, basically it's it's you could double bill this with a big short that they have mm. been they've got lots of positions in things that are very financially volatile and it's about to crash like now, and so it's it's the story of how this company reacts to that over the course of a night, and uh, it's a really good character piece. Uh, fantastic performances all across the board, even from your fellow spacey. Yeah, it's it's a good um, double bill, I would say. With uh, is it Inside Job was the Alex Gibney mm-hmm. um, documentary about the financial crash, which actually almost makes sense of it for us lay people. The other documentary about trading that's really really good is Enron: The Smartest Guys in the Room, mm-hmm. which is a phenomenal look inside what went on at Enron, and is, if I remember rightly, another Alex Gibney uh, documentary, but it's it's a really good look at the culture and at the arrogance and at the complete lack of accountability for all of these people. So, <laughs> yay, oh, yeah. the stock market. But yeah, it's a great double bill. The big short, I mean, that's an obvious one. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's that's a film because I read the book as well. And I'm not very good at this. I did a, a economics at A-level, but that was mainly out of desperation and anything else. And uh, I've never used it since. And some of the stuff is just beyond me. And reading the big short, it, was, it felt like I needed Margot Robbie in a bath to explain it to me all the way through. I felt that very strongly, actually. And, oh, and weird, then, yeah. lo and behold, the movie. No, uh, it happens in the movie. It's so good at taking these very, mm. very difficult concepts, not least in the Jenga scene, where they literally do break it down for the audience. This is what happens. Uh, this is how you short something. This is what is, well, why it's good. This is why it's bad. Um, and that's really good as well, the big short. Mm. Yeah, but I, I feel... I feel I, I'm not always drawn towards movies like this. Having said that, Trading Places and Margin Call are two of my all-time favorites. Yeah, I, I mean, I actually, and we had this discussion back when we reviewed it, I adore The Wolf of Wall Street. I think it's one of Martin Scorsese's best films. But the reason that I adore it is because I feel like there is a really clear moral condemnation mm-hmm. of them by him. Um, and I think that's why I love it as much and as I do. And, and both those Gibney documentaries, Inside Job and Enron, I think are stunning because I think they do, for me, a better job than The Big Short does of explaining what exactly went wrong in 2008 and uh, why it was such a big deal. Here's a question. Do you think Trading Places, were it made now, would have been able to get away with that, sort of the, the sort of opaqueness of how that all works. Because ultimately, there is a sense that someone clearly said, it doesn't matter, you don't need to understand it, it doesn't matter, you understand they got rich and they got poor and that's all you need to know. And they're absolutely right and it works exactly like that. But I can't help wondering if now in, you know, not just 2021, but more modern times, 
someone would have gone to my and went, no, that makes absolutely no fucking sense. Not a chance. You need to have someone, you know, stock explain exactly what happened so people understand what's going on because you're going to lose the audience. But the thing is, you, the only bit you don't understand is exact the exact mechanism of that scene. You understand that they're trying to get information they shouldn't yes. have, the brothers. Yes. You understand that these two are manipulating the information they have in order to ruin them. So you don't necessarily need to know. Oh, I agree with you. You know, I agree what with the you. ins and outs mm. of the scene, maybe. I just wonder whether like nervous studio suits yeah, would have maybe. been like, you know how much they love to speed spoon feed information to the broadest possible audience, whether well, by, they via Margot Robbie in a bathtub, I know. Yeah. Oh, look, if you're going to do it, that's the way to do it. But uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I love the fact that this film doesn't feel the need to patronise you because it's like, do you know what? Don't worry, don't worry your pretty little head about it. It doesn't matter <laughs> how they earn the money. They got rich, they got poor. Let's move on. Yeah. Well, Margie Call is a bit like that. Margie Call doesn't mm. really talk down to the audience. I thought no, it was a great scene where Jeremy Irons, who's the big big boss, is flown in at four a.m. I think it is. And uh, to basically take evaluation of just what exactly has gone wrong in this spectacular shit sandwich. And uh, because he's a big boss, everyone's scared of him. And uh, yeah, he gets Sacri Quinto to try and explain it to him. And he says, speak to me as you would a golden retriever or a small child, which is a line I use so often, so often. Uh, but it doesn't really talk down. It, you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't parcel it out into, into you know, disposable chunks of information. But I think one of the, one of the dangers of movies like Lee's, uh, one of the dangers of things like Boiler Room and Tangentially, because Boiler Room is riffing on Glengarry Glen Ross, mm-hmm. Glengarry Glen Ross and Wall Street, is that dude bros completely misinterpret these movies. Completely. And they oh completely, like The Wolf of Wall Street isn't as judgmental, uh, I think, although, you know, and I think a lot of people look at Jordan Belfort in that movie and they, they see somebody hero worship or they see Gordon Gecko or Ben Affleck in Boiler Room or, or Blake, the Alec Baldwin character in, Glen- in Glengarry Glen Ross, and they hero worship these people and they want to be them and they mm. completely miss a fucking point, which is that these people are arseholes and yeah. uh, morally repugnant and that might be a little, 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 little part of why we're here with the world the way it is. Mm. Possibly. I agree. But great films, great films nonetheless. I'm going to throw one more in before we move on, which is the most realistic depiction of stock market trading. And that's when Bane attacks the <laughs> stock market <laughs> in The Dark Knight Rises. And, yes. you know, like, how could anyone... Like, <laughs> I don't know what he just <laughs> said. <but> I just... <laughs> It'd been still more coherent than Dan Aykroyd in that particular scene. <laughs> Yeah, I, I also though I would like to throw out the Pursuit of Happiness. You see the Pursuit of Happiness, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Gabriel Machino film with uh, with Will Smith, which is one of the saddest films I've ever seen. With whole, he's that penniless sort of homeless salesman, and he goes on to become a broker. But yeah. there's a scene in that film where when he's homeless and penniless, he's got his son with him, and he's they're in a public toilet so that his son can get some sleep and his son is sleeping just like across his legs and he's holding the door shut with his foot while someone's trying to get in and crying and I was like that may be the most heartbreaking scene in all of cinema it just destroys me every yeah. time yeah oh. really upsetting greed is good greed works <laughs> uh, if you want to have your question read out the Empire Podcast and why the hell wouldn't you want to have that honour bestowed upon you just like Burning Beard 696 that's him uh, if you want to have your question read out, just like him, you can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt. Slide into my DMs if you want, or just respond to any of my tweets, or wait for a panicked shout-out of a Wednesday or a Thursday every now and again. Time now for our first guest in this most historic 
landmark episode of the Empire Podcast, and it is Kevin MacDonald, who is a fantastic Scottish director. He is one of those people who, a bit like Asif Kapadia, can flit effortlessly between documentaries and narrative feature films. As if to prove it, the big show-off, he has two movies out over the next few weeks. He has The Mauritanian, which is a feature narrative movie starring Jodie Foster, Tahar Rahim, and Benedict Cumberbatch, and that's going to be out at some point in the next few weeks, pandemic, of course, notwithstanding. But he's also the director of Life in a Day 2020, uh, which is a sequel to Life in a Day. No prizes for guessing that. 10 years after the original. Now, that was a movie executive produced by Ridley Scott in which Kevin MacDonald asked basically the entire world to film themselves doing something on a particular day and send in the footage, and then he and his team assembled a movie from that. And so 10 years on, he's decided to make a sequel. It's out as a YouTube original on the 6th of February. So that's tomorrow, I believe, from Saturday. And it's really good. I don't think we're going to be reviewing it in the show later on, but it is really, really good, really fascinating and interesting and moving at times because obviously it was filmed in the middle of a pandemic. July 25th last year was the day that he chose to ask people to send in stuff and, um, the result is really, really compelling. And Kevin and I caught up on Squadcast last week, and we had a good old natter about that. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Amber Podcast by the director of Life of the Day 2020, Mr. Kevin McDonald. How are you, sir? I'm very well. How are you? I'm not too bad. Not too bad. I was racking my brains earlier on trying to figure out what I was doing on July 25th of last year. And it wasn't anything of any consequence, so I'm not in your movie. That's the, that is for sure. <laughs> well, you might have been in the movie even if you had just been sitting on your bed. You might have done a beautiful shot of yourself waking up or something. And that that's obviously the amazing thing about as a director of this project is that you're totally at the mercy of the generosity of everyone who's going to film and send in stuff and how much they're going to expose their lives, you know, how much, mm-hmm. how much honesty there is in what they do. So, you know, and, and it's amazing to me that people will send in clips where they propose to their girlfriend and she rejects them or yeah. where they show you their, the, you know, their son who's now dead from COVID. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that are just really surprising in, 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 in the film, but also there's a lot of ordinary life, you know, there's a lot of the, just you know the normal things that we're all doing every day. Mm. And what were you doing uh, on July twenty fifth? Were you because you you obviously you had sent this request out to the ether and on yes. July twenty fifth? Were you just basically standing back going, okay, let's wait and see what happens? <laughs> well, I I yeah, I spent a week or two before the twenty fifth of July. So we did. We, I should start at the beginning. We did this ten years ago in twenty ten. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we got like four and a half thousand hours of material. And so we said to do it again now, 10 years later, we didn't know COVID was going to be, you know, the dominant story in the world. Still at that point, we start, we decided to do it in March when we thought COVID was going to be a little thing that we'd blown over by Easter. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we, so we came to, came to the 25th of July, which was 10 years and one day after the original uh, Life in a Day was filmed. And I'd done two weeks of frantic publicity, speaking to you know satellite stations in the Philippines and <laughs> newspapers in Peru, trying to you know drum up interest in, in in this and get people to take part. And as you say, on the deck as the day dawns, there's nothing more I can do, and I just <laughs> had to sit back and hope that people are, are going to do it. But actually, I w- I was flying somewhere. I was trying to fly to Mauritania in West Africa, um, where I just made this movie that's coming out later later in well in, in the UK actually. Uh, 
March, early March. Um, yeah. And uh, I was going, trying to get there to to show the first cut of the movie to the guy it's about, who's from Mauritania, obviously. And mm-hmm. uh, I was, so I was flying. So I actually was Heathrow, and then I went to Istanbul, which is, you know, and and then they then they wouldn't let me on the next plane, and I had big arguments, and and uh, so I filmed that. <laughs> but, uh, but in the end, I didn't want to put in my embarrassing argument, and I did, and, and I think it was one shot of an empty airport that's mine. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, yeah. that's your Hitchcock cameo. That's my Hitchcock cameo. Yeah. <laughs> so you had four and a half thousand hours for the first one. How many hours did you have for this one? I, I think in the end, it's like fourteen thousand. About three three times as much. Which was actually less than I thought. I thought we would get maybe you know twenty or thirty thousand hours, but um, I think that I think um, so many more people from unusual parts of the world got involved, and less people got involved from the United States and from Europe. That was the kind of the way it panned out, which was a good thing because in the first one, fifty-five percent of people were from America, and this yeah. time I think that was down to like twenty-eight percent or something like that. And we, but we we really felt like. This time also because internet is available in so many parts of the world now, almost everywhere, because people have phones with video cameras on them almost everywhere, you really get amazing stuff just filmed by people in of their own life, of their own families, um, in you know a yurt in Mongolia or on the streets of Indonesia or in a in a slum in in West Africa. You know, it's, it's just yeah. it's just you're 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 amazed that people first of all, heard about the project and then shot something and, and were able to send it to you. It's it's incredible in that regard, in that I have barely left this flat for uh, for a year and your film brings you all around the world. That's one of the great pleasures and certainly one of the great pleasures of of making it, uh, which I mostly did from this room that I'm in now at my house. In my house. Um, uh, uh, but but yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, if you're a nosy person, then making this film is just totally fascinating because people are filming in every part of their lives, the most intimate aspects of their lives. And it's really, really fascinating seeing how people go about their business. Um, but also you do feel like you're traveling, you know, you feel like particularly with during COVID and during lockdown, when you can barely go outside to suddenly be in the Siberian countryside or to be in the savannas of South Africa. Mm is oh wow it's a, it's amazing but it's the cumulative impact of all of those things that i think makes the makes the film say something really special uh, uh, something about connection and about the 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 way that we are all so similar you know it's, and every time i say that i feel like i'm you know some kind of californian hippie of which there's a great there's a great example in the film actually of a sort of new age hippie guy in, in the in the hollywood hills but i feel like i'm that person but it really is true i think you watch the film and even the hardest most cynical heart i think will have that feeling of wow you know people people are all really like me i'm like them mm. you know we all share so, you know so much so much in common and that's a kind of reassuring a reassuring thing, and obviously that's COVID is reminded of that anyway, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, COVID is, COVID casts such a huge shadow, obviously, over our lives, but also over the film as well. And it's something that you tackle head on. How did you? Can you talk about the, the sort of conversations and the thoughts you had about that, about showing the impact of COVID on people's lives? Well, we we, we didn't we didn't want it to be overwhelmingly, you know, a film about COVID. Obviously. Um, but COVID is the the dominant news story, the dominant fact of all of our lives, um, or has been for the last you know nearly twelve months. And so, yes, it features 
a lot. And I think when people can look back on this in a few years, you look at this film, you're going to, you know, just be startled by the number of masks and the number of people spraying gas out of the, you know, out of the back of their cars and wherever that is. And um, all of that kind of stuff that now seems quite ordinary because we see it on the news all the time. And, but, uh, you know, I think in the future we'll look back and think, God, what a, what a weird time. But yeah, no, COVID, COVID, um, I think had a really good effect on the film because I think the first film that we did was all, it was when the idea of user generated film was pretty novel. And I think Life and Day was maybe the first film made like that. And people were kind of excited to have a camera, excited to upload it to YouTube, which was only five years old. And YouTube was all, you know, shots of people's cats and babies biting their finger and all that kind of stuff. That's what it was 10 years ago. You're probably too young to remember that, the early days of YouTube. It's like <laughs> silence, like the days of silent cinema. Um, and uh, but, it, but it was a very different beast than it is now. You know, it's, now it's so corporatized and so such a big moneymaker for so many people. It really wasn't like that. So, um, but, but the thing about it was that it was also almost relentlessly positive. You know, everyone was very happy and positive and they were doing fun things and showing you parkour tricks and that sort of stuff. Um, now there isn't that because obviously I think COVID has changed what, you know, what you can do obviously, but also the sort of mentality that people bring to bear when they, I think people are more thoughtful now, you know, I think people are more thoughtful mm -hmm. when they turn on the camera during this period, COVID has made them think about what's important in their lives and that kind of thing. So I think it's a, it's a more mature film. So it really covers the full gamut of human experience. I remember in the first film, we had a critic who said to me, and obviously still stings because I, I remember it. He said, he said something like, um, you know, this isn't real life because where's the sex and where's the death? And the truth was, of course, we didn't, those people didn't send in that kind of stuff. They didn't send in sex. They didn't send anything really very dark. It was quite hard to create sort of dark moments in that film. Whereas the opposite was true now. There was so much sadness, loss, death, and, um, you know, we actually had to sort of work against the grain of that a little bit so that the film wasn't relentlessly down, down beat. Um, but I think that's actually, that makes it a, a stronger film. I think it's really emotional because of it, because it, it's a real roller coaster. There are great highs and there, and there's sort of some, you know, really sad, sad moments. And I also have to ask Kevin, since you brought it up, about the sex, did you get a, did you get a lot of, uh, of of basically straight up porn sent well, to your inbox? Well, you know, I've got this theory, you know, because everything that we, everything, the system is set up in such a way that it all goes through YouTube's computers. And I, I they're not meant to touch anything. We're meant to get everything raw. And I have seen some unusual angles on people defecating. So we do get a lot of pretty, <laughs> <laughs> you know, nasty stuff. But um, but actually not sex. And I don't know whether that's because, you know, sex is the final frontier of home cinema, but I, I don't think so. I think there are lots of people doing that, aren't there? So, I would imagine, um, yeah. Well, we know there are, obviously, because we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're greedy viewers of Pornhub. Um, but, uh, or you told me you were, but uh, so. <laughs> that was a private email, so that's. <laughs> but um, no, so, 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 no, but weirdly not. I mean, there's, you know, the sex, any, you know, there's a lovely sweet moment where a, a girl is about, is going off into the countryside with her boyfriend who's filming her and saying, I'm so happy. And, and she, the boyfriend says, why are you happy? Because it's a beautiful day. And because we're going to do something for the first time that we wanted to do for a long time. And then you realize, oh, they're going to have sex for the first time. And, 
you don't see the sex act itself, but you see the sort of lead up to it and the sort of the, this girl is sort of so full of love and happy hormones and sex hormones and the sort of just the joy in her face is just, uh, you know, really beautiful, I think. And then they switch the camera off and then we come back afterwards and she's <laughs> and she talk, she talks about it. So that's as close as we get to, to actual sex. Okay. Well, there, there's one thing that struck me uh, watching the, the the movie is that how at ease in front of the camera people are these days. And has, has that something that's changed over the last 10 years for you? Uh, you know, now, and I wonder if this might be one of the reasons why you had maybe fewer entries from Europe and the US than you did last time, or maybe in terms of percentage, you had fewer, fewer uh, entries. About, um, yeah, I don't know what yeah. exactly I worked, but it's probably about the same number, but, but yeah, as a percentage, works less. But yeah, I think that we are all now filmmakers, aren't we? It's a cliche, but it's true. We've all got our phones and we're sending little videos and we're doing selfies and we're doing, you know, we're constantly communicating visually. And so... And TikTok is a second language for, for a lot of people TikTok's these days. TikTok is a second language for anyone under 18 and you maybe. But I think that, um, you know, people are really incredibly visually adept and... And the quality of the footage and the steadiness of the shots, all those sort of basic things is way, way better than it was last time. And we had much fewer, you know, many fewer clips of people holding the phone, you know, in portrait mode, which is like incredibly irritating when they do. It's the one instruction we give people, you know, <laughs> make sure there's no pneumatic drills in the background and don't do it in portrait mode. Um, uh, but, and, 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 and so, you know, visually it's, a, it's incredible. Some of the material. And I think looking back, you know, having been in the film business for a long time now, um, mm. I started making documentaries in the nineties when we shot on 16 millimeter and, you know, it would cost thousands of pounds to do a day shoot just off the film stock alone. And you need wait days to process it. And then it would have scratches on it and then it would be out of focus. And, and, the quality of the material, because I was grading it on a big screen actually a few weeks ago, and mm. the quality of that material is is as good as sixteen millimeter was twenty years ago or better. And the sound quality, once we messed around with it a bit and improved it with all the amazing algorithms you can get these days, a lot of it is kind of like, oh, why do we need a Sandman? That's that's really <laughs> that's really that's really good. So yeah, it is. It's just technically technically impressive. But also to get back to your question, people are you know, because they're using it all the time, they're comfortable with it. But also I think it's something to do with the fact that there are very, very few clips in this where people aren't filming their own world, as it were. They're not filming themselves or their their partner or their family. The first film, there were actually more people which were like film students going out and finding something interesting and filming it. That was, there was very little of that actually. And so um, I think there's an intimacy that comes with that. And there's, there are moments in the film where you just think that, I would never see in an ordinary documentary, uh, you know, somebody breaking up with their partner on camera. Mm. You would never see. You would never see that. I've I've never seen that. Um, you've seen it in Richard Curtis films, but you've never seen it for real. And there's lots of little things like that, and also lots of shots. There's an amazing one of somebody, a shot, beautiful shot of a woman riding along some salt flats somewhere on a mm. bicycle with a parrot on her shoulder and she films herself talking, talking to the parrot, then films the parrot flying around, then the parrot comes back, lands on her shoulder. And you just think, you know, if Spielberg wanted to do that in a movie, that would be, you know, it's a half million dollar shot. You would, you could <laughs> never do that. And, and I think there's lots of moments like that. You think, wow, that's, that's somewhere where actually the amateur aesthetic is, is 
you know, streaks ahead of the professional one, the things that, you, you know, that would Marvel movies could do because because they mm. got the budget, but nobody else could. But you can do it if you got a little phone. Uh, I've asked Asif Kapadia this this question mm. as well because, like like you, he can bounce from documentary to narrative feature film, mm. and you have obviously the Mauritanian coming out. Yeah, uh, in the next few weeks, actually. Yeah. So yeah, how how early do you balance March, early March? Yeah, that's early a few March. weeks. That's a few weeks. Yeah, that is technically technically <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> We're already at the end of January, so yes, it is. It I is guess. Just, that is a few weeks. Oh my god, um, it's nearly Christmas already, and. <laughs> Uh, how do you balance those two sides yourself? How, how, how do you do? You have a feeling of okay, now I've done a documentary, now I'm going to make uh, a narrative movie, or is it is it not quite as simple? Well, there's a little bit of that. I th- I feel like, you, know, you know, narrative films makes take so much longer and take so much more out of you, and uh, they're so completely immersive. You have no, no time for any other life. And I think for me, do it if I was going to do to back to back feature films. Not that I've got scripts and money to do that but if i did i think i would think it would be you know it's just it's just it's too much it's just really is too exhausting and i I think of documentaries as a sort of you know not a holiday exactly but a sort of a a pleasant interlude and also you stretch muscles that you don't stretch in fiction you know your tiny crew is three or four of you sometimes i film myself something you know it's very the pressures aren't so much because the money isn't so much you know and um, you could, and and also you can. It's more easy to be experimental because there isn't so much pressure on mm-hmm. financially. So with this film, is I think Life in a Day is a kind of experimental film. You know, there's not really a traditional narrative. Um, there's you know varying quality of of material and footage. It's it's put together in kind of some kind of with some musical logic rather than sort of you know right brain rational logic, um, and. You know, to do if I was unless I'm Terence Malick, I'm not going to get to do that in a in a kind of narrative <laughs> fiction kind of way. Um, and uh, so, so yeah, I think I think um, I, I love that. I love that about documentaries. And and you know, I, in an ideal world, I'd love to carry on doing doing both as long as somebody will, you know, give me the money to make them. <laughs> so, uh, final question about the movie: You had. A- Roughly fourteen thousand hours of footage. The movie is eighty-seven minutes long. <laughs> is there an uncut version? <laughs> or how, how the hell do you yeah. manage to whittle it all down? Yeah, if you don't like the movie, I'll send you the uncut version. Um, <laughs> uh, you can make one yourself. No, it's um, it, it's a it's a huge logistical feat, and I think people imagine that because it's made, you know, with, as a film made using home movies and. And oh, it must be very cheap and easy to do. But actually, it's the opposite. It's incredibly complex, quite expensive to do because we had a team of about sixty people who are technically sorting things out, figuring out how to get the best quality material from the from the original filmmakers. Contacted the filmmakers to say because we have to clear everybody that's in this film. So it's like. It's a, a huge headache and an amazing team of people who, you know, would phone somebody up in Lagos and say, okay, you remember you shot that stuff a couple of months ago and there's three other people at a cafe table near you and we see their faces. Can you go and find them and get them to sign <laughs> a release form? So there's quite a lot of that. And then there's a huge team of people who are viewing material and because obviously I couldn't and there's three editors working with me on this. Yeah. That, that we couldn't watch it. it would take you know, years to watch all that material. So we um, uh, have this team of viewer of, of reviewers, and they speak many languages. And they watch, you know, the Portuguese speakers speak the, watch the Brazilian and Portuguese stuff, the Italians, etc., etc. Et so they spend two months or maybe a bit more than that watching material, 
entering details about it into database so we can search for it and find, you know, the, the shot of a cat wearing a COVID mask or whatever it is you're looking for. And um, the amazing thing is you can literally find almost anything you need. You know, it's, just, it's a spooky thing. It's like all human life is there. So, if, you know, if you want... <laughs> If you want something really obscene with somebody on the toilet, you know, type it, type it in, and uh, and twenty will come up. Um, so, so, but, but, uh, yeah, they, 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 they then those reviewers then sort of law, gave everything a star rating, you know, one to five. What they thought, you know, after a little instruction from me and the editors, what they thought were sort of good bits and bad bits. And I would watch the sort of the best stuff, the, the fours and fives, and some of the threes, and that was where you find the great characters that are going to form the backbone of the film. And then it's like, well, what are the, what are the themes that come out? What is, what is the material trying to tell you about that moment in 2020? And there's thing, you know, there's love is obviously there. There's an awful lot about love. There's an awful lot about people playing around on rooftops, which was a very COVID-y thing. We found everywhere in the world, people playing cricket on rooftops, people playing chess on rooftops, people having doing gymnastics well you know so there was all there's a whole sequence of rooftops activity there's a whole sequence of people of, of sorry of animals taking over the world which was obviously a big thing you know sort of you know people filming you know big cats walking down their streets in in wow. in, in, yeah. in uh asia or people filming uh camels in morocco coming into the center of the city and just roaming around so we did a whole sequence about that so yeah, that's how that's how it comes together, and that, that's you know it's it is made by a big team, and I know that's the case on every film, but on 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 this one in particular, it's it's you know I'm just the I'm just the figurehead. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds that sounds exhausting, Kevin. I'm going to let you go and enjoy your well earned bath. Thank you very much. Lovely to chat. Bye <laughs> bye. Okay, so that was Kevin McDonald, and Life in a Day 2020 is available as a YouTube original. Go to YouTube to find a YouTube original. How original? It's well worth your time. 87 minutes, folks. But it's now time to delve deep into this week's movie news, and usually around this time of year when the Golden Globe nominations are announced, we usually say something like, it's time to give the Golden Globes nominations the time and respect that they deserve, and then we leave... 10 seconds of dead air and then move on. <laughs> I, I'm inclined to do the same thing again. Uh, but I don't know. This year was so batshit insane that maybe it's worth <laughs> chatting about for, for two seconds. Right. There, let's start with the good stuff. Mm -hmm. There are three women in the directing yes. category for the first time in history. There has never been more than one. This almost doubles the total number of women ever nominated <laughs> from five to eight. Um, and of course, there's only been one winner. That was Yentl, um, or Barbara Streisand for Yentl in what, 1984. So that's good. There are things to celebrate here. It's just that so much of the rest is batshit insane. I mean, Emily in Paris. <laughs> Emily, Emily in, in Paris, Paris, Helen. Emily in Paris. Emily, Emily in Paris. In Paris. Or, or Emily Maitlis in Paris is more the More than one name. nomination. More than one nomination. It's got more than one nomination. And Michaela Coles, I made a sure yes, you've got none. So much so that the writer of Emily in Paris has written an op-ed on The Guardian saying, what the actual fuck? Why are you nominating my show and not Michaela Coles? You're insane. This is correct. <laughs> oh. And uh, what does Ray Seahorn have to do to get nominated for Better Call Saul? Genuinely. That's a very legitimate point. I just don't even understand. What is going on? What is going on? But anyway, that's, t that's TV stuff. That's TV stuff. Yeah, true. But, you know, at least they nominated the prom. Yeah. <laughs> 
But anyway, so in case you don't know, the Golden Globes Awards are seen as the second most prestigious awards in the film calendar, after, of course, the Empire Awards, uh, (laughs) now after the Oscars. And they are voted for by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, who are obviously, obviously uh, unimpeachable in terms (laughs) of their opinions. (coughs) No, I particularly enjoyed the time when they nominated The Martian for Best Musical or Comedy. I thought that was uh, was, uh, (laughs) very worthy. It is comical. Um, No, I remember when they nominated The Tourist multiple times. Oh, Jesus Famously great film that definitely deserved to be in the awards race. Let's quickly run through some of the nominations. And they split their categories into drama or musical or comedy. Argument may made at the Oscars, maybe should do that. Who knows? And then, weirdly enough, but for supporting actor and supporting actress, there is no delineation of categories, which has always mm. sat weird with me. Uh, best motion picture drama, The Father, which is now here mm. yet, but is a apparently fantastic drama with great performances from Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman. Yeah. Uh, Mank, they remember that Mank exists. Nomadland. <laughs> yes. Promising young woman. Mm-hmm. And the trial of the Chicago Seven. They didn't. Yes. They didn't care that no. you that they hadn't seen the first six. They liked <laughs> the trial of Chicago Seven. So they were big Molly's Game fans. That's why. Basically, it's it's a nomination for Molly's Game years after the fact. They're just making yeah. up for the. Yeah, you know, they're doing yeah. A, they're doing a Scorsese. Yeah. I mean, yeah. look that that category is not dreadful. It's not dreadful. No, that's not dreadful. that's why I can say no defied bloods, no Ma Rainey. But yeah, those are not great. But like like at least there's there's room to make the argument. Mm. One Night in Miami could have been with a shout. I would have personally put at least two of those three in over at least two of those five. <laughs> um, but I, I can at least see that you can, we can have a discussion yeah. about this, you know? Well, Promising Young Woman, I just don't know when we're going to get to see at this point, which is because that was due to come out this month and it's been mm. pushed again. So. By the time that movie comes out, it's going to be called Promising Old Lady. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is. It absolutely no, the, is. That is a film that is deserving of a lot of attention, a lot of discussion. And I know that yeah. there's been some, you know, controversy in, uh, over it in recent times, but I think it's it gets people talking in a good way, even in its mm. flaws. I think I'm, I'm yeah, mm. I'm really excited by that. Mm. People actually getting to see that, to be honest. So that one I have mm-hmm. probably fewer arguments with, but it's gratifying to see it nominated because it is the kind of film that historically these kind of shows have overlooked in terms, mm. in favour of stuff about war or politics or whatever. Mm-hmm. So... That's good, I guess. That's good. By the time it comes out, they'll have made Trial of Chicago 8. Yay. By the time it comes out, Mike might be entertaining. (laughs) Best motion picture, brackets, musical or comedy. Borat, subsequent movie film. Hamilton, music, Palm Springs, and the borderline unwatchable The Prom. Yeah, that's not a good category. That's, I mean, that's... You know, like I, wow, (laughs) that's. I will say this. Yeah, I've seen Palm Springs. Yeah, it is fucking incredible. Yes, yeah, Palm Springs. Not that's not the argument we're having. No, Palm Springs. Even as I was watching, I was going, "This is so good; it deserves to be in conversations." This was before the Golden Globes, Keystone Cops, to weigh into uh, into these nominations. But uh, that's great. Borat, I'm glad to see, we'll get to the acting categories, I'm glad to see some recognition in that yeah. because, you know, my yeah. usual soapbox about comedies and <laughs> horror being overlooked when it comes to these acting awards as if they don't require, uh, you know, the same amount of effort mm. uh, and technical expertise and sometimes much more than squirting a few in a drama. <laughs> but Hamilton, now, Helen, you and I are Hamilton stands. We are. Yeah. I love that to death. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. But I'm not sure what it is it doing here. Is this a filmed 
play. Yeah, I, I look. I love it, and I'm, I, I mean, that's one of the the, the le- less offensive things in that category, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, but yeah. it still seems fucking weird. Yeah. I mean, by that by that token, should the National Theatre be putting in all of their live streamed productions into the Precisely. drama categories every year? Because, you know, quite frankly, if so, I've got some overlooked uh, films from the years gone past that they should mm-hmm. have been awarding already. Yep. Yep. Because you have a possibility here where Lin-Manuel Miranda has been nominated and he may win a Golden Globe for a performance he gave five years ago. I mean, but then, like, if a film had sat on the shelf for five years for whatever reason and then came out, we wouldn't argue about that. I don't think it's the timing that's the issue. I think yeah. it's I don't think they're the habit of giving out Globes and Oscars to films that sit in the shelf for five years. <laughs> you never know. Do you know what? If it is eligible, then that yeah. opens up the way for him to have an EGOT this year. So... In one year. Maybe this is a good thing. No, well, it, like he's already got the E, the G and the T, so he just needs the O. So okay. he could, he could if, it, if, it, if it's qualifying for the Oscars as well, then happy days, you know, he's, right. uh, he could have his EGOT. All right, you've turned me around in this. Uh, best Actor Drama, Chadwick Boseman, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Riz Ahmed, The Sound of Metal, Anthony Hopkins for The Father, uh, Gary Oldman for Mank, and Tahar Rahim for The Mauritanian. Those are five really good performances, and I look forward Except to all of them. Four of them losing to Chadwick Boseman. Where is Delroy Lindo right now? I don't have a tracker. <laughs> yes, where he's immediately storming the Hollywood yes. Foreign Press Association as we speak. <laughs> I, okay, well, I mean, let's let's sub him in for say Gary Oldman, and then we've got a, a stronger category. But it's not. None of those are again. None of those are bad performances. No. Like some of the the films up for musical comedy are. Bad. Oh yeah! We're, oh, we're going to get to that. We're, oh, oh, yeah. I'm looking forward so, to that. Whereas this, like, at least those are five good performances, and we can just have a discussion about whether other people should be should be in there because they were better. I haven't seen. I will, uh, full, you know, because it hasn't got a release date here yet. I don't think. I haven't seen the father yet. I hear Anthony Hopkins is astonishing in that. He's very, but very good. Yeah. My favorite performance of the category of the performances I've seen is Riz Ahmed, who's transcendent Phenomenal. in the sound of metal. Yeah, yeah. Best Actress Drama Fiola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom Andra Day for Lee Daniels The United States versus Billie Holiday which doesn't mm. have a release date here yet in the UK Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman Frances McDormand for Nomadland and Carrie Mulligan for Promising Old Lady <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't seen Andra Day but all the other four are great I personally wouldn't give it to Viola Davis this year it's, it's a rare time that I say that, but I think the others might have the edge this year. I would probably Francis McDormand, go, Carrie Mulligan? I would probably go Francis. I might go Francis McDormand again. I know that mm. she's you know won her her Oscar and stuff already, but like she's really good. See, I think Elizabeth Moss should have been nominated for the, for Invisible, the Invisible Man. Man. Yeah, yeah, but again, I mean, even though they're slightly more genre friendly, they're still not you know really awarding genre performances. Best Actress Musical or Comedy, Maria Bakalova for Borat 2, Kate Hudson for Music, Michelle Pfeiffer for French Exit, Rosamund Pike for I Care A Lot, Anya Taylor-Joy for Emma. The thing I'm going to pick out there immediately is Where the Hell is Kristen Migliotti for Palm Springs? Mm. And the second thing I'm going to pick out there is the inclusion of Maria Bakalova, which I am very, very, very happy to see. Mm. And I I, yeah. honestly, you know, I did not think it would happen. I went and yeah. rant about this in the podcast. Uh, whenever Borat 2 came out because what she and Sasha Baron Cohen do in that movie is incredible and uh, I thought that it would be overlooked and it probably still will be overlooked by the Academy yeah 
But, you know, for once, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association have stopped clocked their way into a correct decision. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's hard to judge this category because a lot of those films have not been screened over here. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, but I'm very pleased to see her because, like, I mean, and again, it's, you know, those performances in Borat are harder than any method acting drama you can mm. imagine. I just, the, the sheer balls required for it are astonishing. Krista Milioti is really good in Palm Springs and has a much more complex role, I would say. Andy Samberg's fantastic and he got mm. nominated, as we're about to see. But her role, I'm not going to say too much about it, but whenever Palm Springs comes out here, folks, see it mm. on a time loop if you if you need to. Uh, best actor, musical or comedy, Sasha Baron Cohen for Borat 2, James Corden for The Prom, Lin-Manuel Miranda for Hamilton, Dev Patel for The Personal History of David Copperfield and Andy Samberg for Palm Springs. It's called the controversial choice. That's like he seems yeah, to be the hate pick, doesn't it? Because he was terrible. <laughs> I've got. I, I mean, I'm not a Corden hater. I like James Corden, but I yeah, this is. Nor am I, but he was mm, terrible yeah. in that yeah. film, which yeah, was he's... terrible. He was terrible <laughs> in a terrible film. Yeah, it, it wouldn't be my choice, but yeah, Deb Patel's good. Who was the first person I've already forgotten? Sasha Baron Cohen. He's very good. Obviously, he's good. Yeah, and nice. Samberg's great. Yeah, great success. Because this is one of the things, right? This is one of the things. I was ready to come in here with my usual poo-poo the Golden Globes. Who mm-hmm. cares? And then you see the responses from people who got nominated, and they're genuinely overjoyed. And you have mm. to recognise as well the fact that it is considered to be the most, the second most prestigious award ceremony after the Oscars. And so for. For a lot of people, it's a huge deal. There was um, video footage of Kaylee Cuoco being nominated for The Flight Attendant and bursting into tears the second that she got nominated. And, you know, there's part of me that's going, steady on, it's only a Golden Globe. But then (laughs) you also realise that it's a Golden Globe and this is huge for people who get it. And frankly, if I were in a situation where I were to be nominated for a Golden Globe, I would be deleting all these podcasts very, very quickly. <laughs> and I would be going, yes, I've always been a big fan of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Have a watch. <laughs> of my film. Have a watch of my film is what yeah, I would yeah, yeah. say. No, no disrespect to those who are nominated and happy to be nominated. Like I completely understand that. It's just that it sometimes seems like a slightly cynical list of nominees designed to, I don't know, maybe get incredibly beautiful people into the room rather than reward the best whatevers of the year. And and perhaps mm. that's overly cynical and, and that's really our problem to deal with, uh, that cynicism that we have. But, you know, at the same time, it would be nice if they seemed to fuel it less, perhaps, than they do. Uh, but it, look, it, I, I completely understand why people would want one. Like, it's great. You know, who doesn't want an award? Happy days. Have you guys won an award? You have, James. You won an award a few years ago. Oh, the awards. So many awards. I know where I'd put them. Festooned. Liberally festooned with awards. I have I have a number of awards, Helen, in fact. I, in fact, I have a Best Podcast Award for the Pilot TV Podcast, award. which yeah. is uh, very, very exciting. I shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> Helen, have you not gotten an award? Not even no, Best Helen? I don't think so. There was the time I was nominated for a Bauer Award. Remember that? And there were there were five nominees and there was one winner. And, and they there were all three you. No, there was one winner, there were three highly commanded, and then there was me. <laughs> so that felt a little pointed actually. That felt really pretty pretty shit. That's, but that's you know, quite otherwise, no. 
I'm fine though. I'm all right. Just an honour to be nominated. It really was just an honour to be. I'm just thrilled to be in the company of those people who were highly commended. So most times yeah. when you win an award in our little sphere, you don't have a chance to make a speech. It's one of these things where there's like 75 awards during the night, and Rob Brydon or someone is hosting it, and basically everyone's there just to get drunk. And uh, well, you know, with the exception of teetotalers, of course. Hello, Thank you. hands Thank up. You. Hi. Yes, and uh, you know, and but you know, I'm there just to have the free food, uh, get told that I'm not winning something and then leave as quickly as possible. But now and again, I do blunder my way into winning something or we as a podcast blunder our way into winning something, which is always lovely. Hmm. Um, but one time, one time I did win an award in LA mm -hmm. and I found myself having to give a speech right. in wow. front of James Cameron, <laughs> Ernest Borgnine, Robert Zemeckis, and unbeknownst to me, waiting out in the wings backstage, Sir George of Clooney. And I didn't know I had to make a speech. Did you go and full commandant the sound? <laughs> yeah. Many, many wonderful people. <laughs> On this next it's slide. slide. <laughs> <laughs> next award. Mm, bangly bang. And uh, yeah, so I had to uh, I had to make up a speech on the spot, and I don't know what I said to this day. It was just gibberish. Again, never look back. Just assume it all mm. went well. Mm. Never look back. Oh my god! I've heard George Clooney talks about it all the time. He yeah, does. He, does. he yeah. goes, "That's the worst fucking speech I've ever heard <laughs> in my life." Anyway, let's talk about some other things that I'm sure have happened in the world of movie news this week. It can't all be about Golden Globes. There was a new trailer for Coming to America. Mm -hmm. uh, for those very excited about that. I am very excited about this film. I must admit, I was less wild about this second trailer than the first trailer that came out because some of the jokes in this felt... I mean, admittedly, you know, I don't really do humour. But uh, Coming to America is my second favourite Eddie Murphy film and I love it <laughs> dearly. Behind Beverly Hills Cop? Indeed. And so... You know, I've, I have, I have, I wouldn't say high hopes for this, but I have some hopes for this. And I was, yeah, yeah, the jury's still out, very much out. I'm looking forward to seeing it and then hopefully being pleased or <laughs> not being pleased and then getting to bitch about it on the podcast. So, you know, one or the other. It's fine. Hmm. Will the royal penis be clean or not? That is the question. Oh, that's not my question. No. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm just assuming clean, just to be clear, like, and moving on with my life. Anywho. Mm -hmm. Is it, is it just me, or was there a weird amount of Jared Leto news this week? Like, weird amount. So he's apparently reteaming with Darren Aronofsky uh, to make a, a new film called Adrift, which is based on a short story by Koji Suzuki. And mm -hmm. it's um, set in the dead calm on the open sea, a fishing boat discovers an abandoned yacht with a strange distress call. Wasn't this dead calm? Anyway, and a deckhand takes lone control of it while it's towed to port, but... You know, ooh, ghosts or something. <laughs> I don't really know. I don't want I to spoil anything. I hope that was anything. her pitch. <laughs> ooh, ghosts. I hope they got in the room and went, ooh, ghosts or something. Jared Leto. So, so that's one. Then he's also starring with Anne Hathaway in a series about the collapse of WeWork. And I don't know if you've been following this, but it's one of those incredible uh, stories that's been absolutely fascinating to read about. So WeWork is the place where they buy all these office buildings and then you can rent, you can join up to WeWork and then you get the chance to hot desk in any of these office buildings. The company may have been overvalued by Wall Street uh, to a large degree, uh, which has left it now in difficulties. So there's going to be an Apple series about it called We Crashed. And Anne Hathaway and Jared Leto are on board to play the founders. As if that weren't enough, just reaching a fever pitch of Jared Leto excitement, 
He's then going to return as the Joker, because we all wanted that, in Zack yeah. Snyder's uh, Justice League. At this point, I mean, are you in the Snyder Cut? I mean, I'm in the Snyder Cut. Are you in it? I'm assuming everyone's in the Snyder Cut at this point. It's just ridiculous. Well, I'm pretty sure I'm not. I'm only in the Deborah Snyder Cut. I'm not in the Zack Snyder Cut. They're two different cuts. Fair enough. Hers is an hour longer. It's basically just, she just splices in an hour of the podcast halfway through. <laughs> That'd yeah. be great. A character starts listening to the podcast, and then you just listen. You just watch them listen to a podcast for an hour, and then Batman punches something. That's what I want to see. Well, that you may well be in mm. with a chance there. Yeah, mm. I hope. You know, I know that he's only apparently in one scene in in the Snyder mm. Cut, and I hope he didn't go through that method acting bullshit uh, again. I hope he just threw on a green wig, <laughs> white makeup in the face, <laughs> did a little giggle. Yeah, you know? just just doodled some with some sharpies yeah. for the uh, for the tattoos. Yeah, yeah. Like Affleck gets a dead rat in the mail. And goes, oh, not again! <laughs> Come on. Anyhow, hey Helen. Hey, John M. Jew is directing <gasps> Wicked. I know. I'm very excited by this. Uh, so the Wicked. I remember writing about the Wicked adaptation, the film adaptation, way back. One of my first stories, I think, for the website in about 2001. Well, no, I wasn't working there then, but. A really long time ago. This has been <laughs> up and down ever since. And John M. Two, of course, Divine is- Gravity. You might even say, hey, "Oh, very good, hey. very good." But you know, it's still popular. So it's uh, <laughs> going to be getting its adaptation at last, and it looks like John M. Two is going to be the person Stephen to do Daldry it. Stephen was is, doing course, this previously, wasn't he? He was. Yeah, he was on. He yeah. was on board for a long time. He, of course, has just done In the Heights, so uh, he has musical form, and I am excited to see what he does with it. Although I am disappointed still that he won't be doing the Willow TV series, which is also extremely my jam. Basically, John hmm. M. Chu is solid people as far as I'm concerned, and he seems to be interested in the right stuff. He could also do the right stuff, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just hope he steps up to the to streets. To the streets. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, there is a new Cloverfield movie on the way. Yeah, oh. I saw that. This is going to be written by Joe Barton who is one of the writers yes. du jour at the moment. Indeed. Creator of Giri Haji. Very good writer. Giri Haji, he was announced as a showrunner of the Batman TV show, which is going to be focused on the Gotham Police Department. And then uh, he is going to be doing a Cloverfield sequel as well, uh, which is which is interesting. I think he's just writing it. I'm not sure whether he's directing it as well. But this is going to be a direct sequel, a direct sequel to mm. Cloverfield. So Cloverfield begat a couple of spin-offs and I thought we were going to get a Cloverfield film every year pretty much we had 10 Cloverfield Lane mm, which, which was liked. really good the Cloverfield yeah. Paradox which was which decent but less good there were rumours at Overlord that World War 2 bad shit and saying World War 2 kind of zombie movie was going to be a Cloverfield movie in some way and it wasn't but I would have liked it to have been somehow you know mm. and there was like this uh, this idea of Cloverfield anthology movies and then they've, that's just kind of died with the Cloverfield Paradox, really. But uh, this is apparently going to be a sequel to Cloverfield, the giant kaiju movie, I guess. Mm. I guess so. Yeah, I'm, I'm here for that. Cl- Cloverfield was great. It was great. I really I liked it. I feel like it's kind of gotten lost in the shuffle these days, but it was really yeah, good. Yeah, it's one of these things where it hasn't made a lasting impression, mm. has it? Like, it created a big splash at the time because it kind of came out of nowhere, wasn't it? They made it 
you know, in secret. But uh, I guess the found footage thing wasn't to everyone's taste. But I, th- I thought it was loads of fun. I think it was a very effective, very effective yeah. film. And um, there was also exciting Marvel news this week, of course, that Ryan Coogler has signed mm. a five-year deal with uh, Disney Plus. Um, and apparently the first thing in it is going to be a drama series set in Wakanda. So um, lots of Dora Milaje, please. Thank you. <laughs> we don't know anything more about it. We just no, we know, know nothing. Wakanda. Any chance to spend more time with those characters and in that world, I think, is a really good one. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm glad that he's sticking around with the mm-hmm. MCU and sticking around with Wakanda. I, you know, I know well, obviously he's directing Black Panther 2. It would have been very easy for him to be emotionally affected by losing his friend and his yeah. colleague and maybe not want to go, to go back into that world again after Black Panther 2. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that he's doing it and we shall see what happens. A quick mention, Yorgos Lanthimos is apparently teaming with Emma Stone for Frankenstein-style um, Frankenstein style, that's really hard to say. Frankenstein, Frankenstein style, style would have been a tale, title for yeah. film, but yeah. um, called Poor Things, which um, I'm happy about. His his style is bizarre and weird, and I kind of love it. So I'm excited to see what he does with that. Yes, indeed. Uh, Ethan Hawke is reuniting with Scott Derrickson. So mm. fans of Sinister get excited for the Black Phone, which was which is going to be a scary film. You'll be very glad about the Sandman cast. Oh my god, I yes. was extremely yes, excited indeed. about the Sandman cast. There were actually so two good bits of Sandman news. Um, the first one, which I'll just deal with quicker, is they are doing, I think, a season two and three of the Sandman Audible adaptation, and the season one of that uh, is fantastic. It's also star-studded. It's got people like James McAvoy and Riz Ahmed and, and stuff in that, and it's phenomenal. But the Sandman TV series, which is going to be a slightly different take on the comic, um, is shaping up very well. So Tom Sturridge is set to play uh, Morpheus himself, the Lord of Dream, but he's going to be surrounded by the likes of, and I'm not going to remember them all now, but Charles Dance, Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer, which I cannot tell you uh-huh. how happy I am about that. That is the best piece of angelic casting since Tilda Swinton as Gabriel <laughs> in yes, Constantine. Constantine. Um, a related work, in fact. But uh, yeah, i just so here for it. I can't even tell you. Asim Chowdhury and Sanjeev Bhaskar as Cain yes. and Abel, though. That's Kane all about Abel and Cain in that particular case. Yes, yep. that's, perfect, that's perfect. fantastic. And the uh, the Corinthian is there too, right? Boyd Holbrook. Boyd, Boyd Holbrook. Holbrook, yes, indeed. Perfect casting as a Corinthian. I'm super mm. on board. Vivian Ajampong as Lucian. Yeah, looks good. Looks right for the part. So I have no feelings either way about Tom Sturridge. I've got to be honest with you. He he. Okay, so the correct casting for Dream, unfortunately, <laughs> is exactly what Tom Hiddleston did in Only Lovers Left Alive. That is exact. Not Tom Hiddleston in general. Tom Hiddleston specifically in Only Lovers Left Alive is Morpheus. So as long as Tom Sturridge can get close to that, then we're on to something. Okay. And we lost two greats as well in the mm. last week or so. First of all, we lost the great Cicely Tyson at the age mm. of 96, perhaps better known, I would say, for her work on the small screen and on the stage than in the movies. But nevertheless, she gave some incredible performances, didn't she, Hells Bells? She really did. I mean, this was a woman who lived life to the fullest and then some. Um, she's one of the best dressed women in Hollywood, uh, one of my favourite websites, as people, uh, long-term listeners may know, is a site called Go Fug Yourself, which looks at celebrity style. And she was always there in it because she was so phenomenally well-dressed and so phenomenally active. So she was 96 
uh, when she died and was literally in the middle of promoting her her new memoir, which had been published, I think, two days before. So she, you know, got to round out her life, uh, you know, in, in a way and talk about her astonishing achievements. And, and those achievements really were astonishing. She kind of got her start on stage, was, you know, despite the fact that she was a black woman in a time when that was a, a real handicap to a theatre career, and I know it still can be, but she was phenomenally successful. She was nominated, I think, for 16 Emmys across her career. Or was it more? She's, she's, I think she still holds the record for the most Emmy nominations. Um, she won Tonys. She was uh, a, a guest star in How to Get Away with Murder. She played Viola Davis's character's mother in that, if you're if you're struggling to place her, she appeared in Roots. Uh, she appeared in The Help. She appeared in The Heart as a Lonely Hunter. Twelve Angry Men. Odds Against Tomorrow. The Comedians. Incredible, incredible career. Um, and and she did it all while looking and really acting like she was maybe thirty, maybe this year. You know, astonishing, astonishing amount of energy and talent uh, in one very, very tiny body. Amazing woman. Indeed. And uh, she passed away at the age of 96 and passing away at the age of 95 was the great Hal Holbrook, who yeah. yes. you know, people may know from uh, James that will immediately recognise. The West Wing. The West Wing. There Duncan. we go. There we go. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> I was waiting for that. But uh, not many actors, when they pass away, get a tribute paid to them specifically by Steven Spielberg, mm. uh, who worked with him on Lincoln. Yeah. And uh, away from cinema, he played Mark Twain on the stage an awful lot. Mm -hmm. He was great in Lincoln, and but also like Wall Street and all the President's Men. I saw him in recently. Mm -hmm. My God, what yes, a performance! He was, he was Deep Throat. He was. He was Deep Throat. Uh, I don't believe we ever see his face. I've seen that film a number of times, and I, you know, so it's a performance entirely shrouded in, sh in shadow. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's Hal Holbrook, and of course, for me, being you know genre guy, hello, uh, he's really good in things like Capricorn One and mm -hmm. The Firm. Um, he got Oscar nominated for Into the Wild, but I will always, always know him from The Fog, where yeah. he is Father Malone, at, and uh, he is so great in that movie. And is part of one of horror movies' great endings. And he, he only got started in film at 41. Gives us all hope. I am available. I am totally available, but uh, I couldn't hold a candle to Hal Holbrook, who passed away last week at the age of 95. Heck of an innings, folks, for both yeah. him and Cicely mm -hmm. Tyson. Time now for our second guest this week and making a return to the Empire podcast is Paul Greengrass. Ooh. Love a bit of Paul Greengrass on the Empire podcast. His next movie is out next week. It's out on the 10th of February, which is Wednesday. It's out on Netflix. It is a reunion with Tom Hanks. It is called News of the World. It's the first time they've worked together since Captain Phillips. But in it, Tom Hanks plays another captain. This time, he plays Captain Kidd who is a man who goes around the, this is set in the in the days, uh, ye olde days in the, in the old wild west, and he goes around from town to town reading people the news. Uh, one day he discovers a young girl who has been uh, spared uh, or not seen after a massacre, and that is a young German girl who has been living the last few years with some Native Americans. And uh, she doesn't speak much English, doesn't speak a lot of German, and uh, together they decide to, well, he decides to ride across the country. He's entrusted with her care and he, uh, he rides across the country with her. And danger, danger, Will Robinson. 
uh, assails him at every possible turn. It's a real change of pace for Paul Greengrass, whose movies are basically just panic attacks uh, rolled up in cinematic form for a good two <laughs> hours. You know, obviously, this is a guy who directed three of the four Jason Bourne movies. This is the guy who directed Captain Phillips, as I said, United 93, uh, Green Zone, Bloody Sunday, 22 July. You know, this is a man who does not take time to smell the roses, but because the world does that. It's a very, very different, different, more sedate movie. Lovely film, actually. Uh, really good performances from Tom Hanks, who, who was overlooked by the Globes. Mm. Um, perhaps taken for granted, Mr. Hanks? Maybe? Maybe? I spoke to Paul over his podcast, and it's a fairly interesting conversation, guys. Um, it's very serious for 15 minutes or so, and then goes into unexpectedly lighter-hearted territory towards the end. I hope you guys do enjoy me talking to Paul Greengrass. Here we go. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the director of News of the World, returning gloriously to the Empire Podcast, Mr. Paul Greengrass. Always a pleasure to see you, Paul. And you, good to be here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> wherever here is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But good to be here, good to be at home. <laughs> it's strange, isn't it, the way we lock into conventions of shows like this? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. How's lockdown been for you, sir? Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's nice not to have to travel. Mm-hmm. Um, look, for me, it's been fine. It's kids, isn't it? You know, it's yeah. brutal for young people. Yeah, and education and work and you know, and just just, to, just the the uh, the nature of bonding as well yeah. with other kids, lack and, of collective yeah. experiences and you know, it's it's. Uh, but hopefully we're we're on the way to seeing it through now, so mm. that'll be good. Another two three months, I'm sure things will be looking better. Fingers crossed. Get the jab in our arms and uh, and we're good yeah. to go. Fingers crossed. Fingers yeah. crossed indeed. And I have to say, I mean, your your film News of the World is it's a really interesting film. It's got so much heart to it. It's obviously it, you know it's filled with danger. It's about a dangerous time. It's about a dangerous world. It has a lot of things in it that I think are very reflective of where we are today. But it is mm-hmm. essentially about an essentially decent man trying his best to navigate that world, and as a result. It has a lot of heart. Uh, mm-hmm. no, this is not new to your films, Paul, but there's a there's a there's a an emotion here, a, a naked emotion here that I think is yeah, is I fairly new. I mean, I I think I think all my films are warm. I hope I don't think I'm a cold director, but uh, I definitely wanted it to be a bit different to what I've done before. I think it's important to do different things and explore different genres. I definitely wanted to find a film to make that was about hope in a dark world, because that seems to me where we are, you know, what's the road out of all of this going to look like? Mm -hmm. And then when I read the novel, News of the World, written by Paulette Giles, Mm -hmm. I just, as soon as I read it, I thought, well, that's it. This sort of story set in 1870 in the shadow of the Civil War in Texas and the the lonely newsreader traveling from town to town and then his journey with the young girl. That's our world today, really, and it's the road towards hope. And 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 uh, that's how I made it, really. Mm. So uh, at this point, 
in your life? Were you specifically looking to change that up anyway, no matter what the project was? Had it, had it not been used yeah, the world, you've gone I in a different direction? I was definitely looking to do something different. I didn't know it was going to be a Western or that film or anything. You know, you, I think the two things, you know, it's, it's, it always happens. You finish a film. The last one I did was 22 July, which was about the Anders Breivik right-wing attacks in Norway, and it was really about how Norway struggled to come through after those terrible attacks because I felt that violent right-wing extremism was a rising threat and mm -hmm. is going to be here for the with us. We're going to be facing it, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in America, wherever we are, Britain, Europe, mm -hmm. America, it's going to be the next 20 years but or more, but certainly the next 20 years. Um, and it, when I got to the end of that, as I say, it did make me dwell a lot on what's the you know what's it going to look like to get out of this? And you think that because you know I've got kids and they're growing up fast and making their way into the adult world, and that is a point in time. You know, you do think, well, what is the world going to be like for them? Is it mm. going to be as benevolent to them as it was to me? Mm. And uh, and as I say, it's it's. The serendipity of filmmaking, really. You, if I've found it again and again, if you, if you dwell on the right question, the question that's really you're you're thinking about inside. You know, when you go to sleep, when you walk the dogs. You know, what's if you get that right? Oddly, a story always comes. I didn't know it was going to be news of the world. I didn't know it was going to be a western. But, but, but. But when it came along, I thought, oh, well, that's, that is, that is the film of, of what I'm thinking about. And, and so the, the film itself, there was a version of the screenplay in existence. Is that, is that, is that the case? Or? There was a, a screenplay that Luke Davis had done, yeah. And what, what did you bring to it uh, from a screenwriting point of view? I suppose I wanted to emphasise the, the dangers of the world and then the realities of that world, Reconstruction, Texas, 1870, shadow of the Civil War, violence, danger, division, bitterness, and to make the characters live in that world and, and have to face up to the realities of what their pasts had been. Um, so that was really, you know, make it more, in a nutshell, make it more resonant, I suppose more dangerous precisely the resonance is very interesting and there's a you know with without going too deep into the film and, and giving anything away but there's a, a section for example where captain kid tom hanks's character uh, encounters a man who wants him to peddle for want of a better phrase fake news uh and all around he's beset by dangers on all sides and uh people that you might suspect could be analogous to you know, current affairs and people maybe, you know, the, the way that certain people act in the world today. Um, how much of the modern world were you conscious of? How much of the modern world did you want to inject oh, into this? That was that, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted it to make it, you know, look, you've, you, you've got to make any story uh, an entertaining story. You know, that's what movie making is all about. You know, you've got to repay people for the privilege of two hours of their time, you know. Mm. But I felt that if you gave it that edge so that people recognise that world as this world, 
um, that it would make it more engaging. And I think it has done. You know, I think it, 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 you realise that the perils and tribulations and dangers that the, the lonely newsreader faces in 1870 are very like, you know, the threats to truth in our world today, as you say. You know, there are powerful forces uh, out there who want to substitute lies for truth and truth for lies. And, uh, and it's very hard, I think, for, for the business of journalism or anybody who practices, you know, the business of truth because mm. it's, 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 we're in uncertain times. So that felt very contemporary. And, of course, he, 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 the, the figure of the wandering newsreader is a sort of classic American character you know a little mm. bit like the wandering preacher or you know or you know the wandering story mark twain a bit later you know these are classic characters you know and uh, and and what's interesting about those characters is they the storytelling is essentially healing you know it, he, he he turns up in old barns and old dusty old town squares and they're not big events these they're small events but he comes in with his little satchel of newspapers and he reads the news. That's what he does. And he connects with people. He tells them about things that they need to know, you know, the ferry that's not working or, you know, the progress of the meningitis epidemic. But then, of course, he moves to the federal news, the great events that are shaping the world, technology, politics. And that's much more perilous for him because people don't want to know. Yeah. They rebel. About those, they rebel. And then that forces him to choose. Is he going to stick with the truth or is he going to be, you know, subverted? Mm. And he sticks with the truth. And that, I thought, made him a very contemporary uh, figure in mm. a good way. It's it's really interesting as well watching uh, Captain Kidd negotiate a lot of these these events where he reads out the news um, because there is there is a gradual growth of rebellion. There's a gradual growth, I would say, of of mistrust of what he says. And it's at the beginning of the movie, it's very much a case of this is a man. He's welcomed into this community. He reads the news, and it's accepted utterly at face value. And you know, you have a journalist, journalistic background yourself, of course, Paul, and uh, uh, used to be that most people would accept the news at face value, and they would they would take it as truth. And that has changed a lot over the for years. Sure. For sure, not 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 always for the best. No, as well. absolutely not always for the best. From your point of view, what's your take on the way things have gone of of late? Well, look, kid operates in a world before television, before radio, before social media, before movies. You know, he just has a couple of newspapers. But the issues are the same. Mm. The world changes. There are things called facts. There is such a thing as objective truth. Those are foundations of a civilised uh, democracy. Mm. Um, and I think one of the most damaging aspects of modernity is the way that social media has interacted with power, powerful people, powerful forces, to corrupt and bend and twist and damage those fundamental pillars of a, of a, of a democracy. Now, I'm not saying that social media is to blame for all of these difficulties. They've, there's also been tremendous 
release of energy and you know connectivity and all of those things so as ever rather like the onset of printing in the middle ages you know mm. the the it's a reality you can't turn it back it's how how we harness those freedoms and how we enhance those freedoms but protect uh those freedoms without allowing them to be exploited to the bad you know mm. it's always the same with technology mm. in human hands it can be used for the good or it can be used for the bad and i think that you and i've lived through the early explosion of these technologies that all looked optimistic yes you know and rightly yeah. and rightly now we can see that there's something threatening in the way that the sort of guide ropes to hold up a modern democracy are being torn up by the churning protein power of these technologies. Mm. And they have to be controlled. And I think that one of the great causes, I think, of the next 20 years is going to be how to bring these enormous behemoths under some kind of accountability and control it would help of course if they paid some tax that would be a good start that's where it starts yeah i think in the end it will happen uh i think i think that uh i i think very likely if look for instance at the beginning of the 20th century you know mm -hmm. uh these great monopolies you know steel and railroad and oil you know they in the end they were the robber barons. They were called mm. the robber barons. And of course, same thing. They changed the way the world was in profound ways, but also preyed upon mm. people as well. And in the end, they had to be broken up and controlled. And Teddy Roosevelt did it, didn't he, when he broke the monopoly, you know, broke these monopolies. And, you know, we don't, we don't think about it now. It'll happen in the end. It will happen. Good point. I agree completely about accountability as well. Any platform, for example, like Twitter, that allows me to run unchecked uh, must be held accountable for. And well, I mean, they want, the problem I have with it is that they want to be publishers when they want to be publishers, but they don't want to be publishers when it comes to the responsibilities of standing behind what they publish. And that is a straight off number one problem. That you know that is what's got to be solved, and then the second problem is ownership of data. At the moment, the proposition of these companies is that they take your data in return for providing you with a service. Well, the, that should be weighted the other way. We should all own our data, and they should be required to take copyright in our data and so that the terms of the transaction are entirely different and that's an that would be a way of restoring the balance i mean i'm not an expert on this stuff but it seems to me and then thirdly there has to be um you know global movements to make these companies pay their fair share of tax i just want to talk a little bit about about tom uh, working with mm -hmm. Tom Hanks on, on on this one because obviously this is your second time working with Tom. This is the second mm -hmm. part of what I'm assuming is a Paul Greengrass Tom Hanks Captain trilogy. 
<laughs> exactly. We need another captain. We, we? <laughs> we need one more captain. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, it had been a couple of years since uh, since Captain Phillips. This is a very, very different movie, very, very different character. But does your method mm-hmm. of working with Tom change from movie to movie? The same way as with Matt Damon across the four movies you made oh, with him? Not really, to be honest. I mean, it's, you know, it's... Look, that relationship you have with a leading actor is whether male or female is 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 the most important really because together you're charting the throw of the film the the journey of the film if i put it that way and you know it's it's an adventure that you go on together you don't know the answer before you start otherwise it would be filmmaking by numbers you know you you go on a journey and with your map the script and you know, it's a thousand conversations that you have across the period of a few months that you make the film together. You know, is it this or is it that? Oh, that felt good. Or oh, did it? Oh, that one didn't feel so good. You know, and you slowly but surely find your way. And he's an extremely collaborative person. And I hope I am too. And you just, he's also very experienced you know wise you know he's seen a lot of movies and he's a brilliant actor of course which gives him mm. phenomenal antennae for what feels right and you know you you try and as best you can find the way through the dark forest at night with your little torch to the summit of the mountain you know that's really the the job of making a film and uh, you couldn't have a better partner than tom He's also incredibly kind of positive and, you know, he's, he doesn't turn up in a grumpy way. You know, he's just, he's, yeah, let's go for it. You know, and if you pitch him, say, yeah, let's do it. You know, he's a, and, you know, he's, he's just a, he's a good man. He's a good man and a, and a, just a brilliant, brilliant actor. And I think mm. uh, if I'm honest, I would say that we take him for granted somewhat Mm -hmm. because I think he is so consistently good in in what he does. Mm -hmm. There's not many Tom Hanks performances where you go, oh, that didn't work. I can't think of any. I can't think of any, actually, off the top of my head. You know what I mean? Even if the movie doesn't work, he always works in the movie. You know, he's in that tradition of Henry Fonda and Jimmy Stewart, Mm -hmm. you know, ordinary men tested, Mm -hmm. the best of us, decent. And and so it's easy to forget what an extraordinary screen icon he is. And, you know, he's been doing it now for, what, three, three decades, you know, mm. 30 plus, four, you know, 30, yeah. 40 years. And, and he's racked up so many wonderful films that you sort of take him for granted, you know. And uh, I think people do somewhat, somewhat. I mean, everybody knows he's a wonderful actor, of course. Mm. You know, I, I'm a bit biased, obviously, but I think this is one of his. <laughs> I think it's one of his best. And I really do. I really do think it's one of his best performances. I think when he uh, articulates that sense of "we're looking for better days to come," yeah, I felt it. You know, I felt it. You know, some of those scenes are just so tender and achingly truthful and you feel a man who has lost everything in the shadow of pain and grief 
moving steadily towards better days to come and a reawakening and uh, 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 you know seeing a better future and I you know I found it intensely intensely moving the way he charted that journey and I and last time I watched the film which is quite a while ago now for some mm. months ago I thought that is where we are that is where the world is now we're all hoping for better days to come we really are and uh say for example that you do make a third movie with tom a third captain movie with tom um, <laughs> that's a big assumption i'm locking this in for you you have to do it now you can't you know oh, <laughs> okay. you right, have cool. to follow it up um who would he be Which <laughs> who could he possibly be Captain Captain Crystal Palace, perhaps. <laughs> Luca Milivojevic and Tom Hanks play. <laughs> who was uh, who was the captain whenever uh, Palace got to the cup final in nineteen ninety? Um, in nineteen ninety, it's Jeff Thomas, of course. Jeff Thomas, oh, yeah, okay, great, Jeff Thomas. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, it was, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, we could get a supporting part for Jeff in there. Yeah, we? absolutely. He uh, could yeah, come pedalling his bike. Yeah, uh, that four three win over Liverpool was one of the worst days of my young life. So, uh, so oh, I don't know if I want to relive perfect. that Paul Greengrass style, the the this sort of cinema ferrite of your approach yeah. on that day. That, yeah, that would yeah. just break Tom my heart. Tom could come in at the end, there, couldn't he, and knock it in. At the far post, that'd be great. <laughs> I'm, I'm in for that movie. <laughs> Because Tom started off as, as a really wonderful light comedian, and the the one thing Paul I would say that's missing from your CV is an out and out comedy. Uh, so yeah. you know, would would a Paul Greengrass comedy be a good thing? I'd love to do one with Will Ferrell. I yeah. really would. Well, I mean, he's an absolute genius. Step, well, as you know, yeah. I think I've I've you know, Step Brothers is up there for me. Is definitely up there with Citizen Kane. I mean, there's no question about it. It's one of the greatest movies of all time. In that my is view. one of the greatest statements we've ever had on the Empire <laughs> Podcast. That is incredible. Yeah, it's a great film. That's a, he's a great film. Have you ever seen him do it when he gets the award and drops the award on the stage? Have you seen that on YouTube? Oh, for fuck's sake. That is absolutely hilarious. And then gives a long speech about how I was so looking forward to putting this award on my mental piece. It's all lying in pieces. Amazing, amazing stuff. Well, Paul, no, I have genius. to say, Citizen Kane's a pretty good movie, but it doesn't have <laughs> it doesn't have the fucking Catalina wine mixer. So... It does not all lick my butthole, of course, which is one of the great screenwriting lines of all time. I think the line goes, have you got shoulder pain? I've got a cure for shoulder pain. What's that? Lick my butthole. <laughs> and on, on that note, on that note, this very serious interview must come to an end. Brilliant. Good Paul to Greengrass, see you, always a pleasure, sir. Take care, Thanks man. Thanks a lot. See you later. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was Paul Greengrass. <laughs> Saying things I never thought I'd hear Paul Greengrass say. But um, yes, I love that he loves Step Brothers. I love that he is a massive fan of Step Brothers. We need to do a piece, though, on the, you know, serious art housey directors and their, you know, inane comedy favourites. Isn't mm. it Terence Malick who loves uh, Zoolander? Isn't that right? Terence Malick and is, Zoolander? Yes, I think yeah. so, yeah. And we've talked with Paul. Thomas Anderson Thomas on the podcast Anderson. about yeah. his love of the sucker Abraham Sucker movies. Yeah. Specifically Top Secret. I'm pretty sure Chris Nolan is a huge fan of Caddyshack too. Genuinely, I think he is a fan of Caddyshack. There's Caddyshack. There's some, there is something, I've read something about how Chris Nolan- There's a chink in his otherwise well-groomed armour and I yeah. think it's something like that. Yeah. What is, what is <laughs> laughter for him? 
Mm-hmm. I think it's that. I think it's that. <laughs> All I have for you is a word, Caddyshack, when combined with a mild chuckle. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so that was Paul Greengrass, uh, waxy lyrical about stepbrothers. <laughs> and now it is time to talk about this week's movie releases and arriving unexpectedly, like the comment at the heart of its story, is the new Jerry Butler movie, Greenland. Greenland, Greenland, Greenland. Greenland. (laughs) The place where I want to be. Now, people know that I have a love of Jerry Butler's movies. Some of it's ironic. Some of it's unironic. I have to say, Jimbo, I hope you guys are on the same page as me here. I thought this was really fucking good. Mm. Genuinely really fucking good. Well, I should preface this by saying that, to tell you a little, you know, not at all tangential story. Back in 2019, when we went to, the three of us went to that screening of Uncut Gems. And I came out of that screening I feeling like did I had fought the... Did not go to that screening? F- but, did you okay. not? Was it me? No, 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 I think no, it was, no, I think no, it was me, you and, me you and Nick, yeah. Yeah, that's Nick and right. I are Sorry, interchangeable. You, you are interchangeable, exactly. I came out of that genuinely feeling like I'd fought through the entire Royal fucking Rumble, having been called up first. Like, yeah. it was an anxiety attack in cinematic form. Like, it completely destroyed me. It was genuinely the most stressful thing I'd ever seen. Until now. Yeah. <laughs> Until now. Now, and it's, it's really funny, because I know what everyone will think going into this. Like, it's been a really shitty year, we're all going mad, and the perfect antidote <laughs> to that is a completely brainless, slightly goofy disaster movie with Jerry Butler, you know, and he's going to yeah. punch a comet, because yeah. of course Geo he is. Storm 2, of course, yeah. Absolutely that. And yet, oh my God, not because no. Greenland is not that movie. Uh, indeed. Uh, so, so this, I should give it some contest. So, this reunites uh, Butler with, uh, with Rick Ro- with Rick. You give Roman a fact War. about a 1927 silent movie, <laughs> 10 minutes of context. <laughs> okay. So, this is Rick Mo- Roman Raw. Rick Roman War, uh, who did uh, Angel Has Fallen with old uh, with old Jerry, but it is nothing like that film. That, uh, listen, in, that's a that's a, that's a fine and solid entry in the Mike Banning series. I'm, I'm not saying it's bad. <laughs> I'm just saying totally, it's not the same. It uh, is not. So this no. <laughs> this is not not a disaster movie like you know your 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 silly your Roman, Roland Emmerich yeah. type romps. You know, it's about as far away from that as it's possible to get. It is bleak. It is grim. And did I mention that it is extremely fucking stressful? So Jerry plays a place with strengths here. So he's, you know, Scottish. He's a structural engineer. Doesn't even attempt to do an accent. I love that he's uh, Scottish in this. So do I. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> they've, they've seen his other films like, yep, you're going to be Scottish. <laughs> um, so a big ass comet starts coming towards Earth and Jerry and his wife, played by Marina Bakarin, uh, and his son are selected for evacuation to a protective bunker, which is lovely. And you think, oh, this is good. This is fine. Except it doesn't go to plan. In fact, just about everything that can go wrong does go wrong. And then another 20 things which couldn't possibly go wrong <laughs> still go fucking wrong. You know, to the point where it's almost silly, but it can't be silly because it's so fucking stressful. Like, this is like a film that's been bioengineered in a lab to bring you to the very brink of cardiac arrest every three and a half minutes. Like, I, I genuinely, I was a wreck from the start of this to the end. It is not Deep Impact. It is not Armageddon, or it might be if Mike Lee had directed one of those, but it's fucking, it is so, <laughs> so fucking bleak. It could be worse. It could be Threads. It's not quite Threads, but it's, it's not a million miles no, off no. Threads. But it's no. like, you know, I get it. Like, so Emmerich tends to focus on the disaster and the spectacle and stuff, and this uses that as the backdrop for the the family drama, like Spielberg does, I guess, in War of the Worlds. You know, um, yeah. And but there are moments are uh, in this of horror, as like otherwise decent people do 
absolutely horrific savage things when facing death in the face and there are moments of like you know wonderful human kindness it's like mm. doom kind of brings out the best in people uh, i was genuinely reduced to tears in this film by both of those things on multiple occasions also, not being funny, but the crowd second AD on this film deserves a fucking purple heart because there is an awful lot of extra work going on here. Yeah. Loads of crowd scenes, loads of chaos. I think it's really well put together. You know, there's that real sense of mayhem and disorder kind of all the way through the film. And like, you know, while Jerry is Jerry, you're uh, you kind of you're with him. You're with him all the way through this, and you know, often being dragged along by your hair. Uh, and and I don't want to talk about any sequences in particular. I kind of think that that is very much best not spoiled. But there there's a real power, I think, to the disaster scenes in this, precisely because they're the opposite of what Emmerich would have done. Like they're not overblown. They're not huge on spectacle. They're kind of deployed with enough restraint to make the horror come across and let the emotional weight kind of sit with you. And I thought that mm. really, really worked with this. I really, really like this if like is the word you can really use for something that made me almost die. Like it's proper, proper, like a proper disaster film. You know, like how you imagine it would feel to be in that situation with all the horror and the screaming, the crying and the screaming and the panic. The problem is given that we're all living uh, through a pandemic and we're in a slightly delicate state in our own little apocalypse, I'm not sure this is great pandemic viewing. Yeah, like it is a lot. This film is a lot. The, the only thing I can think is maybe it has that sort of cathartic effect, you know? So maybe you're like, okay, things are bad. I'm stressed out right now. And then you watch this and you think, you know what? They could be worse. It could be a lot fucking Life worse. is bad, but it could be worse. <laughs> yeah, to that's quote, right. uh, to quote a recent film or misquote. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with all that. I find it incredibly stressful, but toned down just enough. Like it's still cinematic. It's not a kitchen sink drama. It is still a, a, a cinema film. And I think... The budget was, what, 48 million or something. All of that money is on screen. I think it's been exceptionally well deployed. I think they've got scale exactly where they need it and nowhere else. I think that's really, really well done. I think the performances are good and, and the sort of the character interactions and stuff are good. I have some nits I could pick with it in terms of plot. I think there are some elements that both politically and narratively don't 100% work for me. Mm. Uh, I think there, there might not be any way to get around some of those elements and I'll it's all spoilery, so I'm not going to get into it. But I, I, some of this, there were some things that I didn't love, but I thought what was there was really well done, and um, mm. and yeah, I liked it to the it's extent that it, I wasn't quite stressed. Random that it's called Greenland. Like I, I get why it's called Greenland, but that it's not clear for a significant portion of the film why it's called that, uh, which seems like an odd choice. I think Comet Puncher would have been misleading. <laughs> Do you know what Comet Puncher <laughs> yeah. would have been better? Yeah. But that's the thing. I, I went into this. I mean, I, I kind of had read some reviews about the review, and so I knew it wasn't your typical Geostorm. Jerry Butler barnstormer, yeah, mm. or geostormer. Uh, and that's a really good thing, actually. I, ha mm, yes. I have to say. And you know, I, I've quietly liked a lot of the stuff he's been doing recently. Uh, I liked a lot about Angel Has Fallen, and I think this is a they're making another movie together. He and Rick Roman War, um, and I'm sure you know they've kind of found themselves in this almost almost B movie action Scorsese De Niro type situation, and I'm totally on board with that. I you know the, the submarine movie he made Hunter Killer was was pretty good was as well. Good, yeah. uh, so he's in this little sort of purple patch. And Den of Thieves, I worship uh, the altar of Den of Thieves, <laughs> as you guys know. Um, 
but even so, the, you know, given this track record over the last 10 years or so, you, you go into a Jerry Butler film about the potential end of the world, expecting a certain type of tone and a certain type of Jerry Butler action hero performance, and you absolutely get the opposite of that, and hmm. that his character in this is the hero of the movie, yes. Does he do heroic things? Yes. But is he also sometimes just an onlooker, sometimes just a bystander, uh, you know, in the in the face of this overwhelming cosmic force? Yes. Yes, yeah. he is. Um, and I really liked his performance. I really liked Morena Baccarin's performance. There's some really good cameos as well from, you know, mm. people that whatever you've seen the first time you go, is that so-and-so? <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want to name any names. And then I'm, yeah, you go, I'm, not, I'm not going to name a name, but one that turns up really late on, I was like, no, he needed to be in it. Like yeah, for much 100%. longer. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Bad dude, mm. especially. Yeah. Yeah, I think. I, yeah, I know who you mean. Uh, Morgan Freeman. He's fantastic <laughs> when he comes in and he reveals it's actually uh, a has fallen sequel. Uh, <laughs> I really like this. I gave this four stars, uh, and that is what we, as a magazine, have given it as well. So if you can see Greenland, it's on Amazon Prime Video. Uh, as of today. Uh, next, move on to another movie you can see from your Sofaplex. It's on Netflix. It is Malcolm and Marie, which is one of the many films to claim to be the first movie written, directed, shot, edited, and released during the pandemic. Um, and then Host came out and they were like, oh, you fucker! Shit! Anyway, so this is a film written and directed by Sam Levinson and the stars John David Washington and Zendaya as two very attractive people having a Barney. Mm, that is it, 100% it. Uh, there's barely any more to say, but the, obviously Levinson and Zendaya had worked together already on TV's Euphoria, which is fantastic and she's amazing in it. And they clearly have a, a you know a shorthand and a, a, an ease between them. And they basically came up with the idea for this. So it's a Hollywood director, uh, played by John David Washington, coming home after the premiere of his new movie, which has been a huge success. It's been really well received. Um, just one problem. He forgot to thank his girlfriend while thanking everybody else involved uh, during his introduction to the movie. And she is feeling somewhat aggrieved at that, particularly as she feels she played an outsized role in its creation. So... What follows is basically two incredibly beautiful people having a lengthy argument with occasional lulls in an incredibly beautiful house. The look of the film has been compared to a perfume advert, not unfairly, I think. And, you know, they're both articulate, they're both intelligent, so they have some stuff to say, some of which is very interesting and provoking and, and effective. I think the problem for me is that both of them or rather the film, allows them to both kind of speechify. And my experience of hyperverbal, hyperintelligent people is that they tend to interrupt each other incessantly. And, Sorry, these two, <laughs> and these two tend to allow each other to go off on these incredibly long screeds uh, for hours at a time and then retort with their own screed 15 minutes later. So, um, you know, that elements like that make this feel a little bit artificial and a little bit stagey at times. What I don't have any issue with is the performances. I think both Washington and Zendaya are phenomenally good. I just think they're great together. Mm. Um, I, I just, it's not always quite as as clever as I think it thinks it is uh, in terms of its scripting. And so it's one of these things where, yes, you you conceived and wrote and shot this all in the pandemic, and that's amazing, and it is a genuine achievement. But maybe another couple of script drafts wouldn't have hurt. I'm with you now. When we gave us four stars, I have to say I struggle to get on board with that. 
I think it's very nicely shot. And as you say, the dialogue is showy mm. and brings attention to itself, but it's delivered well. Yeah, really well. Have I mentioned that the house looks good? Oh my God. Otherwise, I found it really hard to care about the beautiful people having an argument. Hey, I, I just, beautiful I just did. people have problems too, Chris. Start a fucking podcast. <laughs> That's all I have to say on that one. But we gave it four stars. Four stars uh, for Malcolm and Marie. And very, very quickly then, we have Bliss, who mm. stars Owen Wilson and Salma Hayek. And it's a mind-bending sci-fi, twisty-twisty thing. But Jimbo, is it Bliss? See what it, did it is proof that nominative determinism is not a thing. <laughs> uh, this this is Owen Wilson as Greg, and uh, Greg, Greg is wow, a- <laughs> I'm Greg. <laughs> hey, yes. I mean that's basically the film. Uh, he is wow. a kind of tech support corporate wage slave guy. He gets fired, and then he meets a crazy lady played by Sama Hayek in a bar, and then finds out the world isn't real. And he takes <laughs> drugs, and he gets superpowers, and he's living in a simulation. And there are magic crystals, and the real world it turns out looks a lot like the Cannes Film Festival, except with holograms and weird thought manifesting video game. Or is it? Yeah. So this is this is uh, Mike Cahill who did Another Earth with Britt Marling. I think that was his first film. He did. And then he's made some other stuff and somehow ended up making this. Now, he did. this is one of these things where it has a really interesting premise on paper. And then when you see it executed, it's nowhere near as interesting as it sounds. So it feels a bit like kind of, you know, sub-matrix simulation model type story thing or what happens if you play world of warcraft too much and can't work out the difference <laughs> between you know living in orgrimmar and actually living the real life like it just it feels like a really clunky mishandling of a good uh of a good sci-fi mm. concept it's deeply pedestrian um and just it descends into rambling nonsense i'm not ashamed to say it, and it might have been because i was half paying attention but i had no idea what this was banging on about for the last third i really didn't he's incredibly owen wilson about this whole thing like he's nearly comatose and she's bubbling with maniacal energy yeah she's uh, which yeah. is at least gives it a little bit of energy but it builds toward this finale and i just like i don't care i'm not even sure i really understand what's happening and i just can't even be bothered <laughs> to go on wikipedia to find out no i I I liked it probably a bit more than that, but I do do agree that there's there's a bit of kind of confusion into what it's trying to say, and not in a good way, not in a pleasantly confused way, more in a sort of unclear way. But it was really good to see Owen Wilson back in a leading role. It feels like it's been forever. It has been a long time. And he's time. so charming. And I, I, I even liked Is him when though? he was kind of having this you know, basically it, it looked to outsiders at least like a breakdown at the beginning. And I, I still was just interested in what was happening to him. Mm. But the the difference in energy, you're right, between him and Salma Hayek is, is incredible because she's going all out kind of crazy <laughs> really lady. Is. And and it is it is really odd between the two of them. So I, I, yeah, I can see what they were going for. It didn't 100% work for me all the time. Yeah, I, I thought it was refreshing in that. I thought it was going to be another Matrix movie and it isn't that because uh, it doesn't have the budget for one thing, but it's not a thriller in that regard. It's more of an existential exploration of of who we are and what is real and how do we yeah. know what's real and you know can you get attached to things that aren't real and all that all that big brain stuff. Um, you know, I thought it was I thought it was totally fine. Uh, and like you guys, I'm really really glad to see Owen Wilson back. I know we're going to see him in Loki mm. in a couple of months time as well. So maybe this is the year of Owen Wilson. Hooray. Who knows? Wow. And on that note, that is it for our 450th episode of the Empire Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Join us next week for more film-related fun 
we'll be getting into our last half century before the big one, before the Jeremy Piven fronted episode 500. <laughs> very, very excited about that one. But anyway, join us next week when we'll be joined by George C. Wolfe, director of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and Juno Temple, star of Palmer, the Justin Timberlake movie that's on Apple TV Plus right now. But more importantly, Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso, yes. But until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Sendaya and the art of motorcycle maintenance, Helen O'Hara. Doodaloo. It is goodbye from Nerb Puncher himself, James Dyer. I believe you'll find my squadcast name is Comet Puncher, not <laughs> Nerb Puncher. <laughs> this, this has to stop. It is. It does. It will never stop. It will never stop until I get bored of it. And I don't get bored of running gags easily, Jimbo. If yeah. it's one thing the previous Where's 450 the episodes. Handle? Oh, Where no. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, it's goodbye for me. It. Ocean's 450. I, I was going to say something else, but now I have to go and find a handle. Where is it? Where's the handle? Help me find it. Help me find the handle. Oh, no. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.